Welcome to the Fundamental Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Paul Saladino. This podcast is the result of my relentless search to understand and correct the roots of chronic disease and illness. In this podcast, I will share with you everything I have learned about how to live the most healthy and radical life possible. Thanks for joining me on this journey. How's it going, you guys? How's it going? I hope you all had an amazing, amazing Labor Day weekend. And if you are listening to this after Labor Day weekend, then don't sleep on my stuff. Get it while it's hot. But I'm glad you're listening to it regardless of when you are listening to this. This is an episode that has been well requested and hotly anticipated. This is the blood work episode. So my friend Nathan Owens at Nathan equals one on Twitter, who you may know from the answering carnivore critiques episode. And I sat down for a solid two hours and went over both of our blood work panels, multiple blood work panels from the last year in huge amounts of detail. We break it down. We break it down. So you will learn a ton about this. I always get questions, which blood work should I get on a carnivore diet? And I wanted to create an episode to give people a sense of what things they should ask their doctor for, what things they should order on their own, and how to interpret them. This episode should not now or ever be interpreted as medical advice. Work with a practitioner if you have questions, but I think that it is empowering for listeners who may not have medical degrees to gain this information and understand what is going on in their blood work. And oftentimes they can then subsequently educate their physicians about blood work they would like, what it might mean and what it might mean for them moving forward and how it might affect the course of their care in a positive way. So because this is such a long, complex episode in the introduction, I wanted to give a quick cliff notes version of the labs that I think are beneficial and I will do it in two sets. I will do sort of the essential central set of blood work and a separate set of blood work, which will add flavor and flair to that and be more comprehensive, but maybe not needed by everyone. I generally get all of these blood tests, both the essentials and the add-ons on all of my clients. And I feel like blood work gives us lots of information upon which to triangulate interpretations of health, predict future health outcomes, and make decisions moving forward. So the basic blood work panel that I would like to see on anyone, whether you are about to go carnivore, whether you've been on a carnivore diet for a few months, whether you're on a ketogenic diet, whether you're on a plant-based diet, whatever, consists of an NMR, which is a nuclear magnetic resonance lipid panel, or a basic lipid panel, but I would prefer the NMR panel. I do think it's valuable to get LP little a in the previous week's podcast from Dave and Siobhan. We talked about that. I definitely want to see a fasting insulin, a hemoglobin A1C, a comprehensive metabolic panel with a GGT and a magnesium and a phosphorus level, a comprehensive, um, a complete blood count with a differential, an HSCRP, a homocysteine, a full thyroid panel with TSH, free T3, free T4, total T3 and T4, reverse T3, and antithyroid antibodies. I really like to see a full sex hormone panel, which has estradiol, FSH, LH, testosterone, DHEA, DHT, prolactin, morning cortisol, and if you're concerned about cortisol, I would also get 
a cortisol awakening response and perhaps a daily salivary cortisol profile. And then I want to see a PTH, as I talk about in this podcast, a PTH in addition to a 25-hydroxyvitamin D and a serum calcium level in in the context of an albumin gives me a sense of calcium status, and I think that we need to think about that on a carnivore diet. I also find a uric acid to be beneficial, as well as a full iron panel, which will have ferritin, TIBC, serum iron, and transferrin saturation. We talk about that in this podcast. Red blood cell folate, red blood cell magnesium, plasma, zinc are also quite helpful as adjunctive measures. So that would probably be the basic, I know that's not a basic panel at all, but that would be the basic blood work. In a perfect world with all the clients I work with, I also get the following labs. A micronutrient panel, which consists of plasma, serum, and red blood cell micronutrients for a variety of things from manganese, molybdenum, selenium, etc. I like to see an IGF-1. Stephen Gundry and others have been concerned about IGF-1 rising on carnivore diets, but that is simply not the case, probably because there's concurrent ketosis. I see IGF-1 levels, as I talk about in this podcast, that are generally about the average or even part of a standard deviation below the average. So it's clear that we are not overstimulating our IGF-1 on this type of a diet. I like leptin as a measure. I like essentially to also add the more sophisticated measures of lipids, which we talk about in this podcast. These are sometimes the plant sterols, cytosterol, campesterol, cholesterol, desmosterol is also helpful. And uh, arginine, asymmetric dimethylarginine, symmetric dimethylarginine. That is all interesting and helps us really interpret the lipid panel well. A toxic metals panel in the serum is fine, I believe, to start, is useful. Fructosamine is another measure of glucose. Cystatin C, C peptide, and a coenzyme Q10 level round out that list with a few others that you can add from time to time. I didn't talk about gut testing in this podcast. I'll probably do a whole other podcast about gut testing. Like I mentioned earlier, I think hormonal testing is valuable, but serum levels are just fine to start unless you want to see a cortisol curve throughout the day. So that is the basic rundown on blood work. Again, we go into all of that stuff in amazing amounts of detail in this podcast. I just blew through it super fast. So if you didn't catch all that, re-listen, write it down, and I will do a blog post about this in the near future. Right now, I am deeply entrenched in the writing of the book, which is my main project. And I don't want to pause to do a blog post, a blog post on blood work, but it will happen in the future. I assure you all, and I'll have all that written out again, but blood work is super fascinating. So that is the summary of the episode. Enjoy it. And check this out. You guys, I have a new sponsor this whole month. I am so excited to be promoting the work of white Oak pastures. You guys are probably familiar with them. They are an amazing, amazing farm in Bluffton, Georgia. They are doing what is called regenerative agriculture, rotational grazing, and in doing that type of work with their animals, which are many, they have been able to create an environment, an ecosystem, which is actually carbon negative. They had a life cycle analysis done through the University of Colorado And the scientists who looked at their carbon and greenhouse gas emissions discovered that they actually sequester more greenhouse gases in the soil than they produce. Ruminant agriculture, rotational grazing, regenerative agriculture, like they are doing in white oak pastures and really leading the way with at white oak pastures, can sequester carbon in the soil. What I am saying is that they 
get rid of more greenhouse gas than they actually produce. I did a post about this on Instagram using a graphic that they had shown to illustrate this visually, but the plant-based rhetoric that eating plants is better for the environment is absolute hogwash. I just like saying hogwash. I'm hopefully going to have Will Harris, who is one of the founders of this farm, on the podcast later this month, and I'll release it next month. But the plant-based agriculture that claims to be healthy for the environment is actually producing way more greenhouse gases than the regenerative actual animal-based agriculture like they are doing at White Oak Pastures. All of their ruminant agriculture is grass-fed and grass-finished. This includes both lamb and beef. Their meat is delicious, and they have amazing cuts and tons of organ meat. They also have Iberian pork fat, which I will talk about. They have Iberian hogs. All of the other animals are pastured and allowed to range and roam. You should check them out. So the other awesome thing is that they are offering a discount for all the listeners this month. And if you use the code CARNIVOREMD at their website, you'll get 10% off your order. The other thing I will say is that if you live on the West Coast, we are still working together with them to figure out how to get the West Coast shipping to be reasonable. This is mostly for my peeps in the middle of the country on the East Coast. Shipping there is no problem. They want to keep your order fresh. And so it's quite expensive for them to ship to the West Coast right now. And we're trying to work that out. But believe me, I live on the West Coast and I want to be able to buy their stuff all the time. I want my friend Tommy Wood and Nathan and all my other friends on the West Coast to be able to buy their stuff. So we're going to figure this out with them. But for now, if you are on the West Coast and you go to get some stuff from White Oak Pastures, the shipping is going to be expensive if you get a big order. I'm just going to warn you because we haven't quite figured out with them how to make that affordable. But if you're in the middle of the country or you are on the East Coast, you are in super luck because White Oak Pastures will ship to you fast and these shipping will not be um, terribly expensive at all. But use the code CARNIVOREMD for 10% off. Their slogan is radically traditional farming. How cool is that? Like match made in heaven. So again, I reached out to them. I wanted them to be a sponsor. I wanted to promote their stuff. I believe in them full heartedly, which I do with both of my sponsors. And so check out White Oak Pastures. I will be talking about them much more in the future. The other sponsor is the tried and true, the wonderful folks at Ancestral Supplements, who, as you know, are making grass-fed organ complex supplements from New Zealand, which are encapsulated into gelatin. This week, I want to tell you about the thymus. The thymus is an organ that, that is in your sort of central chest, and it's involved in immune function. They make a thymus extract. I have thymus in my freezer from White Oak Pastures. I'm thawing it out, but I don't have it all the time. When I don't have that, I do take the thymus extract. So because the thymus is involved in immune signaling, the programming of the immune system, there are unique factors in the thymus that are involved in the immune response. There are peptides such as thymosin, thymopoietin, serum thymic factors that regulate and strengthen immune system and immune health. And it's very likely that taking a thymus extract could be good, could improve our immune function. So check it out. Let me know what you think. They are at ancestralsupplements.com. You can use the code SALADINOMD on their Shopify site. They are putting back in what the natural world has left out. So I appreciate both those people. They go hand in hand. They are great folks. And if you cannot get organ meats or you don't want to eat organ meats, check out Ancestral Supplements. And if you want amazing meat and organ meats, then you should go to White Oak Pastures and check out their stuff and use the code CARNIVOREMD there. So that is it for today, guys. Check out this Bloodwork podcast. Enjoy it. And as always, listen to the end of the episode in the after episode for all the cool stuff that is happening with me. 
Nathan, welcome back to the podcast, my friend. Great to be back. Thanks for coming on. I think that anyone who listens to this podcast will know that you and I did a previous episode, which was super popular, that I titled Carnivore Critiques Answered, in which we sort of walked through many of the common critiques or uh, criticisms that are leveled at the carnivore diet. So if people want to get more of you, they can listen to that episode. And if people are interested in our uh, answers to common carnivore critiques, specifically from Chris Kresser and Joe Cohen of Self-Hacked, they can listen to that episode. But you also have a podcast now, right? Yeah, I've recently launched a podcast with my friend Nick called Root Causing Health, and we're going to deep dive about uh, the root causes of chronic disease, starting with atherosclerosis. Um, we recorded episodes with Nadir Ali, um, Gabor Ardosi, and some other folks, and hopefully we can get you on and uh, some other folks as well. But expects us to to dive deep and maybe even deeper than Paul does on his podcast. That sounds we'll awesome. See. These are so um Nick and Nathan are both software engineers, super smart guys and will carry on the tradition of software engineers being uh, brilliant minds in this space and really thinking about things from a systems perspective which is quite helpful. So I'll be curious I'll be sure, I'll be definitely listening to your podcast. So Great. root causing health and it'll be on iTunes and all that stuff, right? Yep. Cool. All right, so today you and I are seated in the UCSD Medical Library. I'm having flashbacks um, to medical school. I'm feeling like I never am going to finish school, and I have to remind myself that I'm done with medical school, and I'm done with residency, and I'm not actually in school right now, and embrace being here at UCSD in the medical library. But one of the questions that I get a heck of a lot is which blood work should I get on a ketogenic or carnivore diet? And since you've had a bunch of blood work, which is really unique, and I've had a bunch of blood work, which is really unique throughout our collective time doing carnivore diets, and you had a keto phase prior to your carnivore diet, right? Yep. We, we're going to go through all of our blood work and talk about what I think is useful, what's not useful, and I want to give people a sense of what some of these values mean. This is in no way, shape, or form meant to be a substitution for working with your physician, but I do want to empower people to understand which tests to ask for and have some sense of what some of these blood work values mean because it's a pretty powerful tool. So just at the outset, for people that are short on time, I'm going to give a list of what I think are the most valuable blood work tests. So this is kind of the high value content right at the beginning. And then I will give a list of blood work that I often do on clients of mine that is extracurricular, extra credit, but maybe not as critical in the beginning and go from there. And you and I have both had kind of a mix of what I would consider to be crucial central blood work and some blood work, which is really kind of just academically interesting. Yep, exactly. So in terms of basic blood work, and this will be basic only in our relative terms right now, rather than the mainstream medical establishment's relative terms of blood work, I would say for comprehensive basic blood work, which is clearly an oxymoron, but the blood work that I would recommend to people um, if they were going to do a ketogenic diet, if they're going to do a carnivore diet sort of before and then maybe at... 30 or 45 days would consist of the following an NMR lipid profile, which is a nuclear magnetic resonance lipid profile, which we will talk about what that is and a basic lipid profile. So when we go through our labs, we'll talk about how those two are different, but I would note that you can also do a lipid ion mobility, which is a similar test to the NMR or a lipid subfractionation. Um, different labs offer different things. I think LabCorp tends to do NMR, Quest Labs tends to do ion mobility. These will get you basically the same results. And we'll talk about what that means and how it's different than a basic lipid panel. But 
The basic lipid panel, while valuable, is good, but an NMR or one of these other uh, more sophisticated types of lipid panel is a good start. In addition to that, I would probably add an LP little a for people. We'll talk about that some. Uh, you want to have insulin sensitivity markers. This would be fasting insulin, hemoglobin A1C, and fasting glucose. You want to get a comprehensive metabolic panel, which is different than a basic metabolic panel. You want to get a comprehensive metabolic panel to which I would add a GGT, which stands for gamma glutamyl transferase. We'll talk about that. You would get a complete blood count, which is abbreviated a CBC with a differential. So a CBC with diff. I would get an HSCRP, which is a high sensitivity CRP. I would get a homocysteine level, which is sometimes abbreviated HCY. I would also get a full thyroid panel. Most physicians will just order a TSH, and I would get a full thyroid panel, which will consist of a TSH, which is a thyroid stimulating hormone, free T3, free T3, free T4, and antibodies, as well as total T3 and total T4. And the antibodies would be anti-TPO and antithyroglobulin. We will go into all of that, but I am not satisfied with a, just a TSH. And ideally in the beginning, I think it's also valuable to have a reverse T3. I would get a hormone panel, which we will talk about. I think it's actually pretty reasonable to do just serum levels of hormones. There are multiple hormone panels out there, like a Dutch, which is a dried urine hormone panel. I don't think you need to do this unless you're looking at very specific issues. And as I mentioned on a previous podcast with Tommy Wood, urine testing is not good for uh, androgens, that is testosterone and related androgenic hormones. So if you're interested in androgens, you need to get serum levels. Urine can be okay for other hormones, but to really complete the picture, I think you can just get serum hormones to start and we'll talk about both mine and Nathan's serum hormones. Neither of us has done a dried urine hormone panel. To the hormone panel, I would add a uh, uric acid, which is something that I did a mini podcast with Amber O'Hearn about, and an iron panel, which again is a number of uh, measures. An iron panel should include all of these, but it would be a TIBC, which is total iron binding capacity, ferritin, uh, transferrin, and serum iron. Um, to those, I would also add a serum level of coenzyme Q10 at least once, an RBC, which is a red blood cell folate, and an RBC magnesium level. So that would be kind of the basic panel of blood work that I would like to see on anyone. You can get a lot out of that. Again, it's not very basic. There's a lot in there, but um, that's the basic stuff. Anything you'd add to that, Nathan? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think uh, most of these can be ordered online through places like Request-A-Test or um, Private MD Labs or Wellness FX. Um, all of these could be had for on the hundreds of dollars if you aren't able to get your doctor to order these. Um, some of these may be best bought as a package and, you know, maybe we can link to some stuff, but yeah, I think that's a pretty comprehensive initial bout that would allow you to troubleshoot anything going on. If there's things out of whack there that you can follow up on. One of the labs I use for my patients is true health diagnostics and they're quite affordable. I can get a panel like this for someone. Usually it'll be entirely covered by insurance. I've done it myself on a cash pay basis and it's, it's very, very affordable. So in terms of extracurricular labs, things you could also look at if you really want to dig into it that I will do with my patients when we're really trying to figure out a problem or really want to dive deep, I would add a full micronutrient panel, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit. There are a variety of ways to do micronutrient panels. I would add IGF-1, which is insulin-like growth factor one. I would add leptin. I would add um, a little bit more sophisticated lipid 
panel stuff, which we'll talk about. Again, True Health talks about these things like desmosterol, which is a cholesterol precursor. I talk about that in a podcast with Tommy Wood a little bit. Uh, the second podcast with Tommy Wood, which should be out by the time this podcast comes out or the following week, I would get a heavy metals profile, which can really just be obtained in a serum. And we'll talk a little bit about that. I would get a fructosamine, which will complement hemoglobin A1C, which I should have added to the basic list. That was the one thing I left off the basic list, guys. I apologize. Hemoglobin A1C. I think I said that, actually. So fructosamine will complement hemoglobin A1C. You can get a cystatin C, which is another measure of renal function, and that will complement the creatinine and the BUN from the comprehensive metabolic panel. And you can get a C-peptide, which is a little bit more stable measure of insulin. And you could get um, a little bit more sophisticated uh, measures of um, things like uh, hormones, like a Dutch, or you could even get GI testing. That's something I commonly do with clients. Uh, So that would be something like a GI map to look at uh, gut flora and stuff. We will not talk about that in this podcast. We're just going to talk about blood work today. But there are multiple other tests that we can do. Uh, beyond, I'm not sure you people need that in the beginning. If they have GI issues, I think a GI test is valuable. So, all right. So that is a rundown on what I would order. I will probably do, I will do a blog post on my website, which is carnivoremd.com, which I will release when this episode comes out that you guys can look at. It will probably be uh, carnivoremd.com front slash bloodwork will be the the website link and you can get all of those blood tests sort of listed somewhere. Again, I will just reiterate that this podcast should not be a substitution for discussing this with your physician, but I think it's cool to kind of demystify it all. So maybe we should dig into it. Nathan, what do you think? Yeah, sounds good. Okay. So let's start with some of your blood work and let's start with cholesterol. All right. So your cholesterol pattern pattern has been pretty interesting. You had you've had a number of cholesterol panels. Uh, Let's talk about how your cholesterol changed from pre-keto to keto and what we make of it all. Yeah. So my cholesterol pre-keto that I had tested uh, sometime in 2016, I believe my total cholesterol was 177, HDL 67, triglycerides 145, LDL was 81. uh, And then that changed on keto to my total cholesterol going up to 343 HDL of 94, triglycerides of 57, and LDL of 240. Okay. And for the first panel that was pre-keto, let's just clarify, that was a fasting lipid panel, to ha- and you had triglycerides of 145 on a fasting lipid panel. Let's assume that that's the case. I don't actually recall, but it was potentially likely. I was a little overweight there. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so we can talk about your sort of body composition changes over the last few years in the context of all these lipid panel changes, but... As we will discuss, I think triglycerides are the most valuable marker. If I had to pick one marker on a lipid panel, triglycerides are very valuable. And it's quite uh, interesting to see the triglycerides drop to 57 when you went to a ketogenic diet. Now, we shouldn't mention this is a basic lipid panel. These numbers are in milligrams per deciliter. We are looking at a density measure of lipids here. And the total cholesterol is sort of a sum of HDL, triglycerides, and LDL. And then they're subfractionated into the HDL, which is high density triglycerides and low density lipoproteins. And it's worth noting that these are tend to be calculated. The actual LDL value is done using the Friedwald equation, which uses the measured value of HDL and triglycerides to estimate the LDL. 
So if triglycerides are very high, this can skew that off. If LDL is very high, it can skew it. Only certain tests actually do direct LDL-C measurements, and you'll generally see that tagged as like LDL direct. Yeah, it'll actually say LDL-D instead of LDL-C, right? And so if your lipid panel says LDL-C, it's probably a calculated LDL, which is valuable but not as accurate. So what happened to your basic lipid panel when you went carnivore? Yeah, as I went carnivore and lost weight, my total cholesterol went up to 630 at its peak. Uh, it's now down to 485. My HDL stayed the same in the 90s, and my triglycerides stayed in the 60s um, this whole time. So you've had three blood tests in the time that you've been carnivore. Your first blood test was November of 2018. Then you had one in February of 2019. And then you had one recently on uh, July 24th, 2019, right? Yep. And so what we saw, interestingly, was that when you went carnivore and lost a lot of weight, your total cholesterol went way up and your LDL went way up, right? It sure did. Yeah, it went really high. So LDL now has been measured. Uh, what, what sort of LDL numbers have you seen here? Uh, because of the flaws of the test and the calculated measure, I only actually have one direct LDL test and that was, came back at 504. The others can only say greater than 350. Right. And this is milligrams per deciliter. And again, when you had that 504 for your LDL, what was your HDL? Uh, the HDL there was 97. And your triglycerides were? 72. Okay. So many physicians, when they see this number, would say to you, you need to go on a statin right now. My physician did say that to me. <laughs> okay. But as many listeners may be familiar with, uh, neither Nathan nor I believes that LDL is directly toxic to the endothelium, nor do we believe that an LDL of 504 is necessarily bad. But I would add that we have been so indoctrinated in our culture by our physicians, by our media. Physicians have been so indoctrinated that most people, when they see that LDL, think you have familial hypercholesterolemia, which you clearly do not. I do not because I have pre-keto numbers which show that. And I've also done a whole genome sequence and I have no interesting lipid metabolism genes. Right. So just for people listening, they will hear that familial hypercholesterolemia is a genetic issue. It's a genetic polymorphism. There are many polymorphisms which can occur for familial hypercholesterolemia, over 2,000 but you do not have any of those on your whole genome sequencing. Not that I've been able to find. I, I only looked at 300 or 350 that were tied to lipid metabolism that I could find, but nothing interesting. But to have an LDL of 81 prior to this suggests you do not have familial hypercholesterolemia. Correct. And my family members prior to their low-carb diets um, also had normal cholesterol. So there's no familial aspect either, just some diet-induced hypercholesterolemia. And, this is, and my postulate would be that that's not a bad thing. That is an indication of energy metabolism. That is an indication of ketones and other uh, biometabolites being made into cholesterol, and that's not a bad thing. And so there, I've done lots of podcasts on cholesterol, and we're not going to go too deep into this so that we can get into all the blood work, but uh, Nathan's labs are quite striking. And so, uh, but you will notice that his triglycerides have remained low, his HDL has remained low. So this is interesting in and of itself, and we could postulate, speculate about why the LDL went up quite so high on a carnivore diet, but it probably had to do with weight loss, maybe more fat, although you were probably eating a lot of fat on keto. Any thoughts about why your LDL went up so high when you went carnivore? Yeah, I think I'm just a, a good example of Dave Feldman's so-called lean mass hyper responders. I 
have been down below 14% body fat and I'm very active. I'm riding my bike all the time, exercising a lot. And, uh, I think the, the energy metabolism side makes a lot of sense. And just the, the change to fat metabolism, I think has a lot of impact there. And, you know, folks should check out Dave Feldman's work if they're not already familiar to learn about the, the energy model that he has developed and makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not sure that it's the whole picture, but it's, it's a good chunk. And there, by the time this podcast comes out, I should have already also released a podcast with Dave Feldman and Siobhan Huggins, uh, which would be the second podcast I did with Dave in which we talked about that a little bit. As people will see with Dave's work, there is something he's noted called an inversion pattern, whereby uh, the more fat that he's eating, the uh, the less his LDL tends to be. And if he fasts, the LDL tends to go up. It's sort of the hypothesis that perhaps the LDL is going up in people with lean mass hyper-responder phenotypes because it's a traffic of energy and this LDL lipoprotein particle is moving energy. If you are burning fat, if you are running on fat, you are going to see fat in the lipoprotein particles in circulation and that may not necessarily be a bad thing. I don't know if Dave would necessarily agree with this metaphor, but one of the things I've thought to characterize this in the past is that if you have a diesel car and you look in the fuel line, you will find diesel in the fuel. And so if you are running on fat, like we are on a carnivore or ketogenic diet, you will find lipoprotein particles like LDL carrying triglycerides and cholesterol in your bloodstream. And that may be part of what's going on here. So let's dig into a little bit how we can get more granular with the lipids, Nathan. So this is the basic lipid panel. Let's talk a little bit about a sophisticated lipid panel, one of these nuclear magnetic resonance lipid panels or some of these others you mentioned. Yep. So with the NMR panel, you tend to get something like LDLP, which is the particle count of LDL. And sometimes uh, if you do ion mobility or other tests, you'll also get um, small LDL, medium LDL. Uh, from that, you can tell the uh, peak size of the LDL and your LDL pattern, whether you're pattern A or pattern B. Generally, pattern B is the atherogenic uh, pattern type, but many people will say simply a high particle count is atherogenic. But I think as Paul said, you know, it's not clear that that's really the case, but my LDLP, uh, ranged from 2,100 to up to over 3,500. And now it's staying about the same in the 3,500 range, which is actually the maximum for the test. Yeah. So the, the nuclear magnetic resonance is now looking at numbers of LDL particles. The basic lipid panel looks at LDL HDL triglycerides in milligrams per deciliter, which as we suggested is a density measure. And now we're actually counting the number of LDL particles. So instead of weighing the LDL particles, we are counting the LDL particles. And the idea here is that if you have a bathtub, um, you can fill the bathtub with uh, sports, you know, uh, with balls of various size. You can fill it with basketballs or you can fill it with tennis balls. And you could fill the same volume and have the same weight of tennis balls and basketballs, but they are very different looking um, particles in terms of size and number. And that's generally referred to as discordance in your particle numbers. If you have low uh, LDL, but um, a high particle count, that's generally considered more atherogenic than not. And I think we should make a comment about this. Many in the mainstream lipid sphere, I think, would suggest that that is because there are more particles. And I think that both Nathan and I would object to that with the counter hypothesis that perhaps what we're seeing in many people who have high particle counts, or I should say large numbers of small particles, 
is a reflection of insulin resistance. Exactly. And that's generally what's been discussed in literature, and that is sort of a theme of my thinking, and I believe Nathan's thinking, and Tommy Wood's thinking, many people that I talk to, um, though I'm not trying to exist in an echo chamber, um, I will interview Spencer Nadolsky at some point, um, that, uh, that it's the insulin resistance that is the atherogenic component rather than the LDL itself. And that is the main question. That is what we are all debating. That is what we are discussing, whether it is the LDL particle itself, in which case perhaps higher numbers of LDL particles or smaller numbers of particles would be bad versus the insulin resistance, which is causing the LDL to look a certain way. That is the real problem. I would suggest it's the latter and it's not the LDL particles. It's it's the insulin resistance. Exactly. And many of these numbers tend to be proxies for insulin resistance. For example, triglyceride to HDL ratio is essentially a marker of insulin sensitivity. Uh, and I guess we should note with the LDLP, the reference range is uh, 1140 to 1410. So um, my value at 3500 is well outside of the reference range. Right. And then the NMR also calculates um, your LDL size. So you've had, whether or not we think this is valuable, you've had an LDL size of 22.3. I guess it depends what size we're looking at. This has 20, 223 angstroms. Yeah, angstrom, it's uh, move the decimal place to get the... Uh, Nanometers. Nanometers, right. And they characterize that as a pattern size A. So that's an, that's an LDL that's a reasonable size particle. Yep. And then you also get numbers of HDL. So what have you seen for your HDL particle number? Yeah, my HDL particle number was well above the optimal range, which was 43. Um, and it's worth noting that you can actually calculate these out to get a number of particles. So um, these are measured in nanomoles for LDL particle count and micromoles for... HDL particle count, and that's per liter. So you have five liters of blood. We know a mole is Avogadro's number. Do you know it, Paul? Let's see. Uh, 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. Boom, you got it. You remembered your chemistry class. Chemistry. <laughs> chemistry major right here, bro. So if you multiply those out, you get something like uh, three times 10 to the 18, which is quintillions of LDL particles. And if you do the same math for uh, HDL particle numbers, you get something like 100 quintillion, which is one times 10 to the 20 particles. So you have two orders of magnitude more HDL particles in your circulation than you do LDL particles, which is kind of interesting to know. And you mentioned to me something that I thought was interesting, that HDL carries at least 30% of the cholesterol in your circulation. It does. So an HDL particle, what's the size of an HDL particle relative to the size of an LDL particle? It's considerably smaller and considerably more dense, hence the handy name of high-density lipoprotein. Interesting. And these are, we're talking in esoteric nuances right now, but I'll try and make it relevant for people. The reason we're talking about things like Avogadro's number and these numbers of LDL particles is this. If we actually look at the number of particles of LDL, let's just take LDL, which is broadly considered to be bad cholesterol, but I think it needs to be rebranded, frankly, as immunologic cholesterol, um, but they all serve immunologic roles, so perhaps that's not accurate enough. But we look at LDL, which has been demonized as quote-unquote bad cholesterol, we have everyone, whether they have an LDL of 60 milligrams per deciliter or an LDL of 400 milligrams per deciliter or an LDL particle number of 700 or an LDL particle number of 3,500, everyone in that category has an LDL on the order of 10 to the 18th particles in their body. That is a heck of a lot of LDL particles. And 
mainstream lipid thinking would suggest that by lowering LDL from perhaps three times 10 to the 18th to one times 10 to the 18th, you are going to reduce, reduce your risk of atherosclerosis. And just in terms of basic intuitive thinking, this doesn't make sense to me because one times 10 to the 18th is still a heck of a lot of LDL particles. That is not an insignificant number of LDL particles in your blood. And so if LDL were truly atherogenic in and of itself, if LDL were truly toxic to the endothelium in vivo, uh, in its native form, one times 10 to the 18th of something that's poisonous is still a big, big number. So it's never made sense to me why people think that they're reducing it is going to make a big deal. And if you listen to the podcast I did with Nadir Ali, there was a trial that was done with both statins and PCSK9 inhibitors in which the LDL was reduced to extremely low levels, at least in terms of milligrams per deciliter. Those patients had around 30 milligrams per deciliter of LDL, and they still had significant levels of atherosclerosis, even with that much LDL floating around. So the idea that lowering LDL is the key to getting rid of atherosclerosis does not hold up to uh, examination, in my opinion. And I think it's important to note that there are so many LDL particles in our body, and one times 10 to the 18th versus three times 10 to the 18th is a big difference, and one times 10 to the 18th is still a big number. If that particle were dangerous, that's still going to be a big problem. Yep, these are really, really big numbers. And HDL, interestingly, is not felt to be an atherogenic particle. I don't think Nathan and I believe that LDL is atherogenic either, but HDL is classically not considered to be an atherogenic particle, and yet it's present in two orders of magnitude higher, that is, a hundred times higher amount than LDL in the body. And it carries 30% of the cholesterol in the body, and it's a smaller particle than LDL. Yep. So why would it, if LDL is atherogenic, why is HDL not atherogenic? And of course, neither of us believes that LDL is atherogenic. But again, it's, there's these interesting arguments of just, if we're thinking about first principles, like how is this even possible that, why is an HDL particle not toxic to the endothelium when people are claiming that LDL is toxic to the endothelium? Doesn't make sense to me. It is pretty strange. Pretty strange. Strange. But to, you know, be fair to the alternative hypothesis, the idea is that the fact that LDL contains an ApoB lipoprotein and HDL contains an ApoA lipoprotein is the key difference there. Right. And so it's the ApoB lipoprotein perhaps, but again, I don't really buy it. And if I don't buy it either. People should listen to the podcast that I did recently with Tommy Wood, which will be out sometime around this one. I'm not sure exactly when these are going to be released, but one of the themes in that podcast was that in the setting of insulin sensitivity, there is probably no problem to having a high LDL. And I would agree with that pretty, pretty clearly. And speaking of high LDL and endothelial damage from LDL, I guess we should talk about the ox LDL test. Um, I had this done once and it, my result was greater than 135, which is measured in nonsensical units. Um, and essentially from what we can see, this basically, you, you know, you would agree this tracks with LDLP more or less, right? That's what I've seen. And maybe we can talk a little about my numbers briefly, which will help, uh, clarify this. But, um, so in terms of my lipid panel, I have definitely seen the same thing that oxidized LDL tracks directly with LDL. I did not include oxidized LDL in any of those lab tests that I thought would be valuable. So what I have seen, and this is something that I had a conversation with Dave Feldman about, so hat tip to him, our test for oxidized LDL as we currently 
are doing it, as I understand it, is a an antibody test or an ELISA, so an enzyme-linked immunoassay, that will detect a positive oxidized LDL if there's even one phospholipid on the surface of the LDL molecule that is oxidized. I believe it's actually the protein that they test for. It's, oh, the oxidized it's the oxidation ApoB. of the pro, any of the proteins on right. the LDL, from my understanding. And so the problem with that is you cannot get a sense of how much of the phospholipids may be oxidized on the surface of the LDL. And though people have suggested this is a valuable marker, it doesn't seem to be a valuable marker. It just seems to track with LDL. And my uh, LDL numbers were originally a little bit lower than Nathan's, so I can actually do a calculation. But in seeing my um, patients, what I have noticed is that, predictably, uh, the oxidized LDL is always 0.04, uh, uh, is always basically 4% or maybe 0.4% of the LDL particle number. So if you take the oxidized LDL and you divide by the uh, LDLP, you always get 0.04 or thereabouts. I've gotten 0.35 or um, 0.41, but it's it's very predictable that as the LDL goes up, the oxidized L goes up, LDL goes up, and I have seen that in my clients repeatedly, repeatedly. And so you will see the oxidized LDL track with LDL. I don't think it's a measure of excessive uh, oxidation. Now, perhaps we could hypothesize that a uh, an oxidized LDL that were significantly more than 0.04 of your uh, total LDL particle number would be um, a problem. But again, it's just a hypothesis. But I consistently see 0.04, so I guess 4% of the LDL is oxidized. Yeah, it would be interesting to see those values in a smoker or a diabetic and see if you see discordance in that ratio. See if that but oxidized LDL if goes you're, up. If you're doing all the right things, I think uh, it's not worth spending the money on that test. It no. doesn't, doesn't tell you anything useful. Nor should people be dismayed if they get an oxidized LDL with a high... If they, if they get an oxidized LDL and they have a high LDLP, they should not be dismayed about that because, it, again, it's going to track. They can do the calculation where you divide oxidized LDL by LDLP, and it will probably be about 0.04 or 0.35. So that is a quite an interesting thing. Now, I'll just talk about some of my numbers. I had my lipids done in February of 2019. At that time, my LDL particle number was 1637. Um and my, uh, let me see if they had HDL on here. I see your HDLP was 49. Yes. My HDLP at that time was uh, 49 micromole per liter. And my small LDLP was 233 nanomole per liter, which is uh, low. And at that time, uh, my oxidized LDL was 79. So if we do the quick calculation, I think it comes out to be about 0.04 or a little bit less than that. Um, so... That was my numbers then. Now, interestingly, um, my uh, lipid numbers went up. Uh, when I did that one in February, I had been on the carnivore diet for probably seven or eight months, and now I've been on a carnivore diet for about a year, and my most recent numbers look a little more like Nathan's. Uh, my LDL is now 349. Uh, that is an LDL-C direct. Uh, my total cholesterol is 495 milligrams per deciliter. My HDL-C is... Uh, 86 milligrams per deciliter, and my triglycerides were 48 um, milligrams per deciliter. So it's my LDL has gone up as well. Looking at my LDL particle number, it's now above 3,500. My oxidized LDL has gone up in tandem, and uh, that is an interesting. Those probably correlate directly. 
Uh, my HDL particle number is now 53.5 micromole per liter. So you can see my HDL has gone up quite a bit. So it's the same sort of pattern there uh, that the LDL goes up, or at least mine did. I certainly look like what Dave would call a lean mass hyperresponder now, and uh, my LDL is high. But as we'll talk about later, neither Nathan nor I have other markers which are concerning to us and give the context for all of this, which would be insulin sensitivity markers. Yep. And another one that's probably not worth getting that seems to track with LDLP would be LPPLA2, which is uh, lipoprotein-associated phospholipase. A2. Which um, yeah. lipidologists in the, the medical community will claim tracks with vascular inflammation, but I'm not entirely clear on that. Do you have any more thoughts on that? It actually tracks with LDL, as you said. So as your LDL goes, LDL goes up, LPPLA2 will go up. I had a conversation with Tom Dayspring from True Health and, you know, eminent mainstream lipidologist who told me that he thought there was no evidence that LPPLA2 was valuable as a cardiac risk marker either. So he was even in agreement with us there. So well, there you go. Don't spend the money on that one. Don't spend the money on LPPLA2. So what else have you gotten? Cause I've gotten some pretty interesting lipid stuff to complement this. You have to, you have as well, Nathan, what else have you gotten in terms of lipids? That's kind of like extracurricular and interesting. Yeah. I got the uh, synthesis and reuptake markers of uh, cholesterol and desmosterol and also the plant sterols looking at campesterol and cytosterol. Um, my synthesis and uptake were all elevated, which I guess is to be expected when all the other markers are elevated. Um, I don't know if you want to have anything to chime in there. My cholesterol was uh, almost 10 and the reference range is like two to three. So I really exceeded that. Desmosterol was uh, almost four and the reference range for that is around one. Yeah. So these are interesting markers. So cholesterol can be elevated when there's increased cholesterol synthesis. Desmosterol, again, these are kind of esoteric markers. So some people are probably having their heads swim with like all this funny names and stuff, but desmosterol is probably the best marker of cholesterol synthesis. And in the podcast with Tommy Wood that I did recently, he talked about desmosterol synthesis. That podcast was talking about Alzheimer's disease, dementia, the effect that statins could have on the synthesis of cholesterol in the brain and the effect that might have on long-term cognition and memory. But um, the desmosterol is an indication of how much cholesterol our bodies are making. And in carnivores, people on ketosis, I always see an elevated desmosterol because these pathways are being activated and these pathways are shared between ketogenic pathways and uh, cholesterol pathways. That is what happens. We make more cholesterol. That's why LDL goes up on these diets. So the desmosterol is not something to worry about. It's going to be high. I don't think it's something that most people need to get, but it's an interesting thing. It's probably relevant if you're on a statin to get a desmosterol level because a low desmosterol level would be problematic. And as I talk about in the podcast with Tommy Wood, the brain has its own supply of cholesterol. It's not made in the periphery and transported across the blood-brain barrier. So if you have low peripheral desmosterol, you worry that if the statin is crossing the blood-brain barrier, which is what it would do if it were a lipophilic statin, it would inhibit the production of desmosterol there. Inhibiting the production of cholesterol in the brain would be a very bad thing because it's needed for membranes and cellular metabolism. And I guess just some background on those markers, these all of the cholesterol and desmosterol are intermediates in cholesterol synthesis, right? So we're basically measuring bits along the pathway to making cholesterol. To making cholesterol. Cholesterol being a very important molecule uh, that humans use for a variety of things. 
The other two molecules we talked about are sort of interesting, the campesterol and the cytosterol. These are plant sterols. Mm -hmm. So they'll give us a sense of how much we are absorbing plant sterols. And that is, uh, that is useful for people. If they do have plants in their diet, they could see if they are hyper-absorbing plant sterols. Now, I'm writing a part of my book right now where I talk about the possibility that plant sterols are even more atherogenic or could contribute to inflammation. I don't think we fully know at this point. Um, I don't know that neither either Nathan or I believe that cholesterol itself is an atherogenic sterol, but there is some evidence that plant sterols could be dangerous for humans. And this would make sense to me because there are sterols that our body doesn't really want and hasn't seen. There was this kind of misguided effort for a while uh, to put plant sterols into butter and other margarines, things like this, to decrease LDL. Yikes. And it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I don't think we want to be putting a whole lot of plant sterols in our body. I've even heard Tom Dayspring say uh, that they are atherogenic, and I'm looking for the research on that. Yeah, I think I have seen research showing that. Curiously, mine were in the normal reference range, whereas yours were very low. I do, you know, I'm not as 100% carnivore as you are. I do eat some dark chocolate and some coffee. So I'm curious. Uh, I was trying to find some research about whether those sterols are found in those products that I, you know, tend to eat occasionally. But, uh, you know, maybe I'll do a, a break from coffee and uh, chocolate and we'll see if my uh, plant sterols decrease. I bet they would. I've seen that in people. When I see the plant sterols uh, moderately elevated or at least in the middle of the range, or even some people are hyper absorbers, it's usually from coffee because a lot of people I work with don't have a whole lot of plants, but some people do. But it's something to notice, especially as we get to have more research about the fact that they may be atherogenic. What should we talk about next? Do you want to move on to hormones? I want to, move, I want to talk a little bit about some of the other um, inflammatory markers. All right. So one of the markers that I've had on the True Health test is, again, I think it's an esoteric marker. It's asymmetric dimethylarginine and symmetric dimethylarginine and L-arginine. You haven't had any of these on your panels, have you? Uh, I did, I believe. I think I had, uh, yeah, I had SDMA, ADMA, and L-arginine and MPO. I, I very rarely see the endothelial function markers, asymmetric dimethylarginine, symmetric dimethylarginine, abnormal. Um, I haven't seen it on a lot of people, but I also don't see a lot of people with frank metabolic syndrome. So I don't think, think these are necessarily valuable, but what we're looking at here is arginine metabolites, arginine also being a precursor for nitric oxide, which is used for vasodilatation. Um, but were you're all, were you're all's, were all of your markers in the normal reference range? Yeah. Mine were smack dab in the, the ideal part of the reference range. Yeah. So I think that the lipids, which we've talked about at some level of detail now have to all be interpreted in the context of inflammation and insulin resistance. And so there are some inflammatory markers, which I think are valuable. And these would be HSCRP, myeloperoxidase, fibrinogen, homocysteine. And so HSCRP is something that I've talked a little bit about before. I had a great conversation with Dave and Siobhan about this. You can check out that podcast. The takeaway from that one for me was that HSCRP, which stands for high-sensitivity C-reactive protein, can be elevated by all sorts of things. And so if it's elevated, we have to think about, was there recent exercise? Was there a sunburn? Are we sick? Um, but generally speaking, the people I work with on ketogenic and carnivore diets should have very low HSCRP. Mine has been uh, less than 0.03 on multiple occasions. And uh, generally, I will say that there is no evidence that a carnivore diet elevates inflammatory markers like HSCRP. What's your HSCRP been, yep, Nathan? Mine measured is less than 0.02, which is the bottom of the scale for their measurement. And this last test was 0.05. 
uh, and I had been doing more resistance training. I took a break 24 hours beforehand, but, uh, I could chalk up the minor increase to just being, uh, broken down a little bit from working out. Dave and Siobhan have done a lot of work measuring their CRP. Siobhan mentioned that hers has been elevated after a sunburn. Um, Dave has been, uh, has done it after ultra marathons and marathons and runs and seen it quite high. So if you are going to measure HSCRP, which is a valuable metric, it should be first morning fasting and you don't want to have done a hard workout the night before. Yeah, I would say potentially a, a day, two days, three days, if you really want to get a, a good accurate measure to make sure it's not, especially if you're doing heavy lifting or intense exercise. Yeah. And you certainly don't want to go in the gym the morning of and do a workout and then check your HSCRP because it won't be valuable. Yeah, that will not be a useful measure. But if HSCRP is elevated and you're doing all those things, you should probably keep an eye on it and understand where it could be coming from because uh, evidence of inflammation is, is a valuable thing to track and we want to try and get rid of it. The other measures on here are myeloperoxidase, which is another measure of inflammation. That generally is something that's produced by neutrophils, one of the cell lineages in our bodies, which we can talk a little bit about when we talk about the CBC. And fibrinogen, which is a clotting factor, and homocysteine. So my myeloperoxidase was most recently 193. The fibrinogen was 363. Those are all within normal. Have any of those ever been elevated for you? No, my fibrinogen was uh, 240 to 294, and the myeloperoxidase I got was 153. So I've got you beat a little bit there. You do have me beat there. Slightly lower values. Let's talk a little bit about homocysteine. Uh, People should refer to the podcast I did with Ben Lynch if they're interested in homocysteine. Homocysteine tends to come up a lot. And the reason I mention this as something that I think is valuable is twofold. One of them is that homocysteine is an indicator of folate status, and the other one is an indicator of riboflavin status. I talked about this in more detail with Ben, but my MTHFR, which is methylene tetrahydrofolate reductase, genotype is 677C to T homozygous, which means that my MTHFR enzyme is a little sluggish. But as we know, if you are getting, if I am getting enough riboflavin and enough folate, my MTHFR enzyme will work normally. So I want to mention to people that I am homozygous for the most severe polymorphism of MTHFR, and I don't take any methylfolate. I just make sure to get a reasonable amount of riboflavin in my diet through organ meats and get the active form of folate in my diet, which is L-methylfolate, which I believe exists in animal meats, and my homocysteine has been 7 on multiple occasions. Though the reference range for homocysteine goes up to 13, I think that's ludicrous. And in any of my patients or clients, if their homocysteine is above eight, I will recommend uh, looking at folate and riboflavin status closely. That makes a lot of sense. Mine also is in that same range. It was from uh, six to 7.2 and the latest was uh, 6.5 micromoles per liter. Do you know your MTHFR? Uh, I think it's the one that's 66% effective, but I think uh, folks should check out uh, Tommy's talk that he just did at AHS where he looked at the normal distribution of homocysteine levels in people with the different polymorphisms, excluding the worst polymorphism. There's almost no difference in homocysteine levels across the population, which probably wouldn't stand out because of how metabolically broken and nutrient deplete most people are. But um, it seems like these genes, if you're eating even kind of acceptably don't have a massive impact. Except I would say, to that I would add MTHFR. If you have the 677 polymorphism. Yeah, if you have both of the bad have, polymorphisms yeah. and the T to T and the, the I C forget T what the other. And the, the other yeah. one, so it's 677 and 1298. Yeah, if you have both of those in the, the bad configuration, then it can be problematic. But that yeah. is pretty rare. 
I, I would say that in Mediterranean and Hispanic populations, it's not rare to have uh, six, seven, seven polymorphisms. But basically, you don't even have to check your genetics. You can just check your homocysteine. And if your homocysteine is above eight, you probably need more folate and riboflavin. Yep. And the thing I'll add here that is interesting, just as a, a commentary, plant folate is dihydrofolate. And that is the type of folate that we need to process through the MTHFR enzyme to make methylfolate. But animals have the same folate cycle and they make methylfolate. So it is my suspicion, my hypothesis, my postulate here, timestamp it, is that animals, animal meat is going to have L-methylfolate. And I've never seen this researched. I've never seen anybody check it. But I think the folate in liver is likely to be L-methylfolate. And my labs reflect that. I do not take methylfolate. Uh, I don't. I want to correct it all with food if I can. I'm not hung up on that if I can't do it. But in this case, my homocysteine has been uh, quite low uh, in the very optimal range with only liver and organ meats and my carnivore diet. I will also mention that my homocysteine has been as high as 12 or 13 in the past when I was eating a more standard diet and was not getting enough of those nutrients. And at times I have lowered my homocysteine with methylfolate supplements, but I choose not to take it now. And like I said, I think that if you're eating animal products, you will get methylfolate. Makes sense. And yeah. I, I don't eat quite as much liver as you do. And, uh, I don't have quite as severe of polymorphism, but what I am eating seems to be working for my homocysteine. Yeah. Your, your homocysteine is fine. All right. So I think with that, we should move, let's move out of the lipids. Hopefully that's a good summary. We talked about most of that stuff. Yeah, pretty well. And let's move into hormones because you've had that checked and you had kind of an interesting hormonal pattern. I have. Yeah. So, uh, I guess we could start with the stress hormone cortisol. That one's pretty easy and interesting. I had that measured in serum. Um, the reference range is two to 20 and I was at right in the middle at 8.2 and 9.2. So that's not too interesting, but I guess if folks have elevated cortisol, I don't think we had that on the list, but that might be one. It's in the hormone panel. So I'll just, worth adding. I'll expand here for people when they're getting a hormone panel. I would order the following things. I would order uh, morning cortisol. I would order free and total testosterone. I would order sex hormone binding globulin. I would order estradiol. I would order DHEA. I would order LH, which is luteinizing hormone, FSH, which is follicle stimulating hormone. I would order prolactin. I would also order um, DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone. And I think that would be it in terms of hormones. But the hormone panel is extensive as well. Again, you could get a Dutch, which is a dried urine hormone profile, but those are not very good at looking at androgens. There is a polymorphism in um, the, I believe it's the FUT2 gene, um, but I could be wrong about that, whereby some people actually do not secrete testosterone in their urine. They can have a normal testosterone in the serum and a low testosterone in the urine. And so urine testosterone is not accurate. So the only thing I maybe would add to that is a PTH, which is a parathyroid hormone, which gives you a sense of your calcium metabolism. But if you get those hormones in the serum, you will get a pretty good sense of what's going on. And if you need more, you can go to the dried urine. Gotcha. Um, so the next one that I guess we can talk about is sex hormone binding globulin. Mine was pretty high. It ranged from 45 to 57. The reference range goes up to 50. And uh, I believe on your last podcast with Tommy, he mentioned that it essentially tracks with insulin sensitivity. It does track with insulin sensitivity. I would not characterize your SHPG as high. I would characterize it as normal. Women tend to have higher levels of sex hormone binding globulin. And perhaps that's something that I should mention in this podcast that um, the reference ranges for some of these things in the hormones will be different for men than women. But SHPG, um, if you look at the differential diagnosis, there's a differential of high SHPG and a differential of low SHPG. Uh, 
basically a low sex hormone binding globulin is something that people get when they are um, hyperthyroid, I believe, and insulin resistant. And a high sex hormone binding globulin is something that people can get when they have hypothyroid or they are insulin sensitive. And so if the sex hormone binding globulin is out of the range or in the range, then um, we can look for those causes. But most of the time I see it within the range. The reason we think about sex hormone binding globulin is because it, it binds up free hormones and there is the possibility that free hormones are the active hormones. And so we can't just get total hormones. We have to get the, uh, the free and the total and the SHPG helps us look at that. And the SHPG, the sex hormone binding globulin, can tell us if there's a major issue going on in other hormonal systems or uh, other problems. Makes sense. Uh, the next one is uh, total testosterone. Uh, mine started off very low. I was at uh, 261 nanograms a deciliter and went up to now I'm at 731 nanograms a deciliter. And uh, I guess I'd chalk that up to uh, I was doing quite a lot more fasting and was eating a lot less calories then. Um, so I think my testosterone is pretty low. And then my free testosterone went from 32 picograms a milliliter to 113. So I almost... Uh, quadrupled my free testosterone. And I guess it's worth noting that the total testosterone counts the testosterone that's bound to albumin, I believe. Uh, and the free testosterone is believed to be the generally or active hormonal form, but it's not clear if that's hundred percent of the case. I don't know. You want to, yeah, the total is going to be the testosterone that's bound to albumin and SHBG and the free, and then the free is just the testosterone that's not bound to either albumin or SHPG. Makes sense. When people are looking at hormonal numbers, pay attention to the units. Nathan is giving his units for total in nanograms per deciliter and free in picograms per ml. So some of these numbers may sound a little different. Yeah, and I've actually had these be in the same unit with different reference ranges and different results from different labs. So these aren't particularly comparable, I don't think. Um, I would just say check against the reference range from what I've seen because I have one test that also claimed to be in picograms a milliliter and was a totally different scale than the other ones that I have. Totally different order of magnitude. Yeah. I'm just looking at the SHPG for people. I think I reversed it. High SHPG is hyperthyroid. Low SHPG is hypothyroid. Low SHPG, the differential diagnosis also includes sleep apnea, insulin resistance, like we said, hypothyroid, diabetes, um, and other conditions like acromegaly, which is a growth hormone secreting tumor, can cause that. High SHPG, we think of anorexia, alcoholic cirrhosis, hyperthyroid, primary biliary cirrhosis, uh, low gonads, or hypogonadism, and testosterone replacement therapy uh, can create a high SHPG. So again, that's a little bit of a nuanced diagnosis if the SHPG is off, but it is interesting to look at those numbers. So I think people, the biggest question people are going to be asking here, Nathan, is, and you talked about it, but just expand on a little bit. What the heck did you do to quadruple your testosterone? Yeah, that's, I, I wish I knew all the answers, but I think, uh, you know, a lot of these things are difficult to tell what the heck's going on because it's the um, pituitary, thyroid, gonadal axis. So you have to look at a lot of different measurements to figure out what the heck's actually going on. So I when I was trying to troubleshoot this, you suggested that I also get uh, LH, FSH, and prolactin to see what was going on with those um, because you can have, if you have low luteinizing hormone, which is the 
hormone produced by the pituitary gland, uh, that's generally showing that you have uh, what would be considered secondary hypogonadism, which means that the problem resides in your brain, uh, not with the testes. So if you have normal uh, LH, that means your body is telling your testes to make testosterone. And if you have low testosterone in that case, your testes aren't making it. That would be primary hypogonadism. Sound like a doctor, bro. <laughs> secondary would be when, uh, well, you got to look into this stuff when you figure all this stuff out. Um, when you have normal or uh, low LH, that means your pituitary gland is not making it. And that ties into um, potentially like nutrient intake status, sleep, all that kind of stuff that's going to impact the brain side. So I think I was just uh, calorically restricting myself into uh, secondary hypogonadism, which was not so fun. So prior to this test, I way upped my calorie intake and I was, you know, and I, I put in room darkening shades and I got a chili pad and I've made too many interventions to really say what I did, but my sleep's been better. My food intake has been greater and that resulted in higher testosterone and interestingly a still low LH. So go figure. Uh, that, that, that puzzles me. I don't make sense of that, but let's just say, so we don't confuse people. I'll just recapitulate some of that. So the LH and the FSH are something I always get with testosterone. People will go to their doctor and they'll just get a total testosterone or a free and they'll see it low. And if they're men, they'll get testosterone replacement right away. And I think that's crazy. We need to be looking for the cause of the low testosterone before we're supplementing men of all ages with testosterone. This is nuts. Uh, literally that's a good pun. Um, so, (laughs) but if you are sleep deprived, your LH and FSH will go down. Your pituitary will not signal to your testicles to make testosterone. That is correctable. You get better sleep and your body will make testosterone. There are many people in residency who are going to have low testosterone, for instance, residency for medical school because they're not sleeping enough. And as Nathan is suggesting, I've seen in clients not eating enough, lots of fasting. This will affect your testosterone. So if there's a low testosterone, recheck it and make sure you're getting more calories. Maybe think about how long you were fasting before the blood test. If you get testosterone in the middle of a five-day fast, it will be low. It will be low. It's also, I, I don't think I noticed any subjective difference in libido or anything like that from having a testosterone of 261 versus 730, which is on its own kind of interesting. It is an interesting thing. And I think that the missing part of this equation is tissue sensitivity. And I have not seen a lot of great evidence for this yet, but I would love to see it because I see people, I hear the same thing from people. I, I don't get worried about testosterone unless it's lower than the reference range and people are having symptoms of erectile dysfunction for men or uh, low libido for men or even for women too. And the reference ranges for women are going to be totally different for testosterone, but this is relevant as well because women can have uh, low libido related to low testosterone and it can be related to the same things, not, not enough calories, anorexia, um, overstressing with exercise, overstressing their life, poor sleep. It's similar, just different reference ranges. And, but if people are having, if people have good libido, they have good sexual function in man, erectile dysfunction in women, you know, libido and uh, no pain with intercourse, then yeah, that's probably not a, this may not be an issue there. And it's important to think about like, what's the sex drive like? And there is a tissue sensitivity issue here. I am sure of it. And I think like so many things in the future with ketogenic diets, we will learn tissue sensitivity changes. And we'll talk about this when we get to thyroid. But yeah, that's definitely been shown, at least in muscles for building muscle. It's not the free or total testosterone that matters. It was the density of androgen receptors on the muscle. I don't don't know the reference off the top of my head, but that was something that I saw on Twitter recently from one of these muscle researchers. That you have to find me that study. 
Will do. Okay. So yeah. So it's and it's probably the density of the the receptors in the brain, right, for libido, and the density of the receptors everywhere for testosterone, and that is something we cannot measure with a blood test. So the takeaway with regard to testosterone, because I think a lot of people want to know about this, is that check your levels, look at the SHBG, also look at the estradiol, look at the LH, look at the FSH, make sure the prolactin is not high because there can be prolactin secreting adenomas in the brain that can affect the formation of testosterone. But generally, if you have good sexual function, if you have good libido, if you're able to maintain muscle mass and your testosterone is the low end of normal, don't stress it. It's not a... Yeah, don't, uh, don't lose more sleep over yeah, it. So it's you not a contest. It <laughs> it's not a contest. If you have good function, that's what matters. We cannot measure the density of receptors on your muscles, on your testicles, on your brain, or in anywhere else where testosterone is going to work. It's magic. And if you feel good and these are within normal, I wouldn't worry about it. If they're low, then you have to think like, was I fasting too much? Am I not getting enough calories? Am I not sleeping enough? Especially if LH and FSH are low. But we cannot just look at free and total testosterone and give someone testosterone replacement therapy. Yeah, I think that's that's a bad move. It's a bad move. Personally, my testosterone has been kind of similar to Nathan's. I've had a total testosterone that's been around 500 to 700, and the free tends to be, uh, again, my units are a little different. The, the lab that I've used uses slightly different units. My free has been between five and seven, which is all in the reference range of the lab that I use which is uh, the units are nanograms per deciliter for the free testosterone. And I do notice that if I am stressed, if I am overworked out, if I have not slept well, my testosterone will drop a little bit. My FSH and LH don't move around a whole lot, but I know that if I go to get my testosterone checked and I've been working real hard, doing podcasts for you guys, I've been crushing it in the gym or something, it might be a little lower. I don't get stressed about it. I just know that this is how I'm tracking. And I think that with a lot of these measures, you want to get them over time. If they're consistently low, then we look for a problem. Speaking of time, testosterone secretion varies with time, and it's very important to get it tested um, probably within two to three hours of waking. Yes. And uh, towards the end of the day, testosterone will be lower. So it's generally highest in the morning, and that'll obviously depend on your sleep-wake time when that's, you know, ideal to measure. But if you Google around for, like, you know, testosterone over time, you can find a graph of, you know, they measured men. and Diurnal pattern. It's a pretty big pattern, um, pretty big swing, 20 30%, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. This is probably why people get morning wood while men get morning wood because there's yep. a, a peak in the morning. And I'll say there's also a diurnal pattern for cortisol. AM cortisol, cortisol should be highest in the morning. That's part of our circadian rhythm. And so you want to measure cortisol in the morning or know that if you're measuring cortisol in the evening, it's going to be different. And this is where we get these sort of salivary cortisol panels that give you 24 hours of cortisol. There is a diurnal pattern. And I guess another thing we should throw in while we're talking about time and testing uh, would be coffee. Uh, Probably don't drink coffee uh, the day of at the very least and probably two to three days beforehand because that can throw off your triglycerides. Uh, and potentially increase cortisol. Don't drink coffee in general, people. Or don't drink coffee in general. Avoid it. The other thing I'll mention here is uh, DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone. Uh, My dihydrotestosterone has been 48 and 46. And interestingly, this is something that I learned. So one of my friends is uh, Brian Johnson, who owns Ancestral Supplements. And he told me that uh, there's a pigment in salmon roe which can actually inhibit the formation of DHT. And anecdotally, I paused on salmon row and my DHT went up. I'm not sure I noticed a major difference in terms of subjective uh, symptomatology or libido or anything, but my DHT did go up 
when I stopped eating salmon roe and people will say, oh, he's not eating salmon roe anymore. I still eat salmon roe from time to time. I just don't eat it every day. What was your change in the I DHT? think that the previous DHT was in the 20s. It was probably about 25 and now it's 45. And is this measuring in the synthetic pathway? I'm not familiar with DHT. Uh, yeah, testosterone gets converted to, to DHT. Gotcha. Yep. And they're, uh, the pigment in salmon roe, um, I'm blanking on the name of it. Will you look it up real quick? Yeah, I can look it up. It's, uh, we'll think of it. Um, inner, uh, it's also in like shrimp and things like this. There's this pigment uh, that people will know. I'm just brain spazzing right now. Uh, can inhibit the formation of DHT. So that's an interesting thing. If people have a low DHT, sometimes they think, oh, maybe you're eating salmon roe. It actually harkens back to a conversation I had with my good friend Chris Bell many months ago on his podcast. He said, is it, is it actually seasonal or evolutionarily consistent to eat salmon roe every day? And I thought, you know what? It's probably not. Maybe I shouldn't be eating it that much. I think it's a great source of highly bioavailable DHA, which we will talk about when we talk about the omega-3s. And I don't need it every day anymore, but I do use it as an omega source uh, from time to time. So the other thing that I'll mention is the IGF-1, which is really interesting for people to see. Um, many people will criticize carnivore diets, saying that the IGF-1 is going to be super high or uh, that you're going to trigger this insulin-like growth factor. Uh, to high levels. And I've had my level checked twice. Again, this is kind of in the extracurricular section. Uh, on the most recent blood test, my IGF-1 was 96. So anyone that says that eating a carnivore diet is going to spike your IGF-1 is cuckoo in, in the coconut and their banana pancakes. And I've had an IGF-1 measured, I think another time in like the mid 150s. It probably has to do with the fact that I was fasting for this blood test. And so when I'm fasting, it's going to be a little lower, but eating a carnivorous diet does not raise your IGF-1 people. It does not. Eating a lot of carbohydrates will raise your IGF-1. Yep. Mine was uh, 122 and 146. And my lab also gave me a Z-score, which I think is age-adjusted uh, population standard deviation score. And mine was uh, minus 0.09 and minus 0.04. So I was below... Uh, 0.04 standard deviations below the population for my age. Eating a ton of animal products. Eating a ton of animal products. So this is a whole separate conversation about mTOR, activation of mTOR, IGF-1, but I think it's pretty clear that um, mTOR is not overactivated eating an animal-based diet. Uh, I've talked about that in, on multiple other podcasts. The take-home message is that both leucine and insulin and exercise can activate mTOR, and that insulin is a much bigger trigger for mTOR than leucine, um, and that IGF-1 levels are totally normal in people on carnivorous diets. They're not super high, uh, but the way to raise your IGF-1 is to eat a ton of carbohydrates or a bunch of dairy. Yep, and you could raise it by eating more frequently. So I think it's reasonably a good idea to, to eat eat in a limited eating window instead of eating all the day. And I think this goes back to the idea that we need to have anabolic signals. We need to turn on mTOR sometimes. We just don't want to turn it on all the time. Yep. It's this pulsatile thing. It's a, it's a, it's a sort of a cycle. So I guess insulin-like growth factor, let's talk about insulin itself. So I had mine measured at uh, 1 IU per milliliter and 1.9, and then most recently 4.9. Um, the ideal here is having an insulin less than 9, and I think uh, insulin can actually be pretty pulsatile, so it might actually be good to look at um, another panel that Paul mentioned, which was, uh, what was the other one you mentioned? C-peptide. That's a, a longer-lived C-peptide. Yep. metabolite we, related yep. to insulin. Yep, we can talk about that. But an insulin of one puts you at a very, very low HOMA-IR, which is the homeostatic model of insulin resistance and generally super catabolic state. 
So if there were one test out of this whole panel that I would think would be important, it would be fasting insulin. Yep. And I think that is the one test that physicians do not do for people. But yes, my, my fasting insulin has been equally low three to two, two to three, the whole time I've been doing it. And it is so important to know your fasting insulin. It's probably one of the best measures of insulin sensitivity. C-peptide is, my C-peptide was one. Did you have a C-peptide measured? I did not have a C-peptide. I've had my C-peptide measured at 0.9 and one. Uh, the insulin units are micro units per ml. The C-peptide is nanograms per ml. And C-peptide, like Nathan is saying, is a little bit more stable measure of the same thing. Insulin does have this sinusoidal pattern on a minute to 10 minute basis. So you can't quite tell. And so I usually do, for my clients, I'll do an insulin and a C-peptide together, uh, especially if the insulin looks at high end of normal. My goal for insulin for people is less than four. Uh, when I see five, when I see six, when I see nine, I think, no, there's something going on here. There's insulin resistance and you can triangulate insulin resistance looking at triglycerides and looking at hemoglobin A1C and looking at fasting glucose. And we'll talk about those. But as Nathan is saying, the HOMA IR is a calculated score. Yep. That's just based on fasting insulin and fasting glucose. And you can find a calculator online. I think it's multiply one by 21 and divide by the other or something. And mine was below the reference range. Yeah, so the pigment in salmon roe is a carotenoid. It's called astaxanthin. It's also in shrimp, and that can affect DHT. Again, this is esoteric sort of nuance, but I wanted to get you guys that. All right, so since we're talking about glucose and stuff, let's move on to the comprehensive metabolic panel. Let's do it. So fasting glucose is one of the things we see in a comprehensive metabolic panel. We also see electrolytes, but let's we'll break it down for people so that they have a sense. Again, I want to do this to empower people so they understand what we're talking about. But comprehensive metabolic panel is a basic metabolic panel plus things like liver function tests, which we'll break down. So uh, generally in a comprehensive metabolic panel, I'm going to see a sodium, a potassium, a chloride, a carbon dioxide, an anion gap, a BUN, a creatinine, a glucose, total protein, albumin, uh, a globulin, albumin-globulin ratio, totally bilirubin, alkaline phosphatase, ALT, AST. So that's a lot but I'm going to walk you through what it all means. Basically, the first part, sodium, potassium, chloride, those are electrolytes in the serum. They don't really reflect tissue levels. Your body's going to keep those really, really tightly regulated unless you are metabolically deranged or super sick. So I don't get a ton of information there. If any of those are way out of the reference range, we have a problem and we should look into it. But generally, sodium, potassium, chloride are within normal. Yeah, pretty much all of these. If I look at the past five tests I've had, they are almost exactly the same values. These are unbelievably tightly homeostatically regulated. And they again, the take-home here is they do not reference tissue levels or body stores. If you want to know how much potassium you have in your body, the best is probably red blood cell potassium, which we'll talk about. And that's going to be in a micronutrient test. Again, you can get a serum magnesium, which could be included as an add-on to a CMP, a comprehensive metabolic panel, but that is also not going to be a good indication of total body stores, and you need to get a red blood cell magnesium if you want that. So the carbon dioxide is kind of a measure of acid-base balance, as is the anion gap. Those two things cause much consternation for medical students throughout the world. I don't think we need to dwell on them a whole lot. They should not be abnormal. Uh, the BUN is something we see a lot in carnivores. So BUN is blood urea nitrogen. It's often slightly elevated in people that eat a lot of protein or meat. Um, it can be elevated due to dehydration or a high protein meal even the night before. Uh, 
pathologically, we will see a BUN elevated when people have upper GI bleeding, like an ulcer in the stomach, but an uh, elevated BUN in someone that had a large protein meal the night before is probably not a problem. What have you seen for your BUNs? Uh, mine are in the 19 to 22 kind of range, and they tend to hang around there, and that's in the reference range. My creatinine is generally 0.84. It's been 0.84 in every test, and that does elevate my bun creatinine ratio above the reference range of 22, but not by much. So in medical school, we're always taught that the ratio between BUN and creatinine should be about 20. And if somebody has a higher, they may be dehydrated. As I said, there can be also limitations based on protein consumption. Yeah. If you're eating a lot of protein, makes sense that that would go up. The BUN will go up. Um, but the creatinine is a measure of kidney function, but it's not a perfect measure of kidney function. Creatinine comes from the breakdown of muscle creatine, and in people who are extremely muscular, you can see creatine that is falsely elevated. And so if you are also eating a lot of protein, your creatinine may be slightly higher. Mine generally runs about 0.1. I'm a little bigger and maybe a little bit more muscular than Nathan. And um, so when I started doing a carnivore diet, I also got something called a cystatin C, which is another molecule that we can look at the levels in the blood to get a sense of kidney function. Neither of these are direct measures of kidney function. Creatinine is a molecule that is, again, a breakdown product of creatine, and we are measuring it in the blood because generally the kidneys should clear most of it, and if it accumulates, the kidneys are generally not clearing it, but it can also be overproduction. For instance, if you were supplementing with creatine, your creatinine would go up in the serum, and it would not mean that your kidneys weren't working. It would mean you had more breakdown. So I think in people that have muscularity and or are supplementing with creatine or are eating a lot of protein, it's useful to get a cystatin C if creatinine is at all abnormal. Um, but generally, if creatinine is high, we start to think about abnormal kidney function. It's rare. I've never seen it on a carnivore diet. There's no evidence that a carnivorous diet is going to hurt your kidneys. People. Yep. My, there's also the EGFR, which is the estimated glomular filtration rate, which I think is based on the creatinine. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of calculations. Um, mine has been very high, 121. The estimated optimal range is greater than 60. So you no want, issues with kidney function here. You want your EGFR to be high. So you want the, the rate at which your glomeruli, which are these little magical units in your kidneys that do all the filtering, you want that flow rate in the kidney to be high. So it's not a bad thing inside. That's saying, hey, your kidney's filtering a lot of junk out. That's what we want. And then the next one on the CMP is the glucose, which is a fasting glucose. And um, this will be something that is the first measure of a diabetic problem in many people. Sometimes people who are eating a lot of protein or under stress will see the fasting glucose rise. And this is a question that we still don't understand on the carnivore community. My fasting glucose has been between, I would say, 81 and 90. Generally, if I'm eating a little less protein, a little more fat, it's on the lower side, and I liked my fasting glucose ideally to be in the 80s. When I see a fasting glucose above 90, I start to think, ah, is this person eating too much protein? What's going on? But uh, generally speaking, people on ketogenic and carnivore diets do not have many postprandial excursions of glucose, which is something I've talked about with Tommy Wood. These are called mages. I believe it's median amplitude glucose excursion, which would be the amount of uh, the, the amount that your blood glucose changes after you eat. Of course, this blood glucose measure is a one point in time measure uh, in the morning first thing. If people have a high fasting glucose on a ketogenic or carnivore diet, I would recommend uh, at least considering fat to protein ratios and maybe looking at glucose throughout the day. What have your glucose readings been? Uh, pretty wide range. Went from 60 to 103 with my latest one at 90. Um, but I measure these things at home with the glucose monitor, ketone monitor, and I 
generally see it to be pretty flat in the eighties most of the time. So, and Nathan wore a CGM for a little bit. Yeah. I did two runs with a CGM and I got a flat line for my money. Right. So this is when you were eating a carnivorous diet. There were essentially no variations in glucose throughout the day at all. Yeah. Pretty darn flat. I even cheated and had a pint of Ben and Jerry's and saw the world's tiniest rise in blood glucose. Um, so that was kind of interesting to see, but interesting. So you even had a bunch of sugar. Yep. I think uh, low low glycemic load from ice cream was pretty good. Resulted in my blood glucose going to maybe 115 for an hour. Huh. One of the things that I thought was really cool, Dom D'Agostino was talking on another podcast about how people could potentially use continuous glucose monitoring uh, to get a sense of which foods might be triggering them immunologically. And this is a subject for a whole different podcast about CGMs and monitoring glucose, but I do think they're a fascinating tool. Generally on a carnivore diet, people don't get any bump in the blood sugar throughout the day. It's completely flat. Yeah, there's there's no sense in wearing one with the carnivore diet unless you're just curious. It provides you no value and you see that your blood glucose is a flat line all day. I no. actually got uh, bad readings because I'm low body fat percentage. My If I went out on a bike ride, my interstitial glucose, which is what it's actually measuring, dropped below and it thought I was having a hypo. Hmm. Interesting. And I'll uh, reiterate something that uh, Tommy Wood said in a recent podcast with me regarding uh, blood glucose levels that the, uh, that these median amplitude glucose excursions or these postprandial glucose excursions are uh, dangerous because they may damage the glycocalyx, which is this sort of glycoprotein matrix on the inside of blood vessels. So keeping the blood sugar steady is very important. And um, though I do at least take notice of people that have fasting glucose levels that are slightly elevated. I don't get terribly worried about it if I believe that their glucose is stable throughout the day. Um, a corollary measure to total glucose would be hemoglobin A1C, which is technically not included on a CMP, but a hemoglobin A1C is a 90-day average of blood glucose looking at the amount of glycosylated hemoglobin in the body. And generally, we want to see that below 5.5. Uh, I've seen mine a little bit higher than that when I'm eating more protein, but never anything too elevated. What are your H1Cs? Yours are even lower. Yeah, mine was around 4.7, and I think I had another one that was at 5, so pretty stable. I have a suspicion that some people with ketosis may have longer life in their red blood cells. And I've yeah, heard, that would make sense. I've heard Rob Wolf at least postulate this in the past as well. And if the red blood cells live longer, there's going to be more hemoglobin on the, you know, the hemoglobin molecule. It may not be as good. One of the extra credit tests I suggested was a fructosamine level. Fructosamine is probably a shorter measure, meaning a shorter time horizon measure of average blood glucose in the body. I've done that and seen that to be normal as well. So if we are curious about an A1C, we can get a fructosamine measure which is probably going to reflect two to three weeks of average blood glucose rather than uh, three months, but we should not see those elevated. Going back to the comprehensive metabolic panel, we see total protein and albumin. These are generally measures of nutritional status, and I don't ever see them abnormal in the people I work with. Uh, you'll get a percent albumin. Uh, again, it should be normal. Uh, percent uh, globulin uh, and the albumin globulin should be normal. Again, those are kind of measures of nutritional status. We know that lots of carnivores are getting plenty of protein, plenty of nutrients. Those should be normal. Bilirubin is a little bit interesting. Bilirubin is a breakdown product of hemoglobin and comes in two types. Generally, it's not measured or fractionated into direct and indirect on the comprehensive metabolic panel. Mine just is total. My total was 0.7 milligrams per deciliter. But direct bilirubin is also called conjugated bilirubin. In the liver, uh, the body will take unconjugated bilirubin and 
conjugate it to a glucuronide moiety to make it conjugated bilirubin, which makes it water-soluble, um, and it goes out in the bile and can go out in the urine as well. Um, but it should not spill over into the urine. Uh, unconjugated bilirubin is uh, something that we should not see elevated. There are a number of differential diagnoses here. If you see a elevated unconjugated bilirubin, generally you think of either hemolysis or Gilbert's syndrome, which is a genetic polymorphism in the enzyme, which does the glucuronidation of bilirubin in the liver. I'm getting pretty granular here. That is also the enzyme that is inhibited by piperine. Um, so interesting there, but uh, piperine is from black pepper. It is inhibited by UDP. It inhibits UDP glucuronosyl transferase. And Gilbert syndrome uh, is a modification in that enzyme as well. So people with Gilbert syndrome may have elevations of unconjugated bilirubin uh, or hemolysis. Again, this gets into like pathologic states. If you have an elevated bilirubin, you need to see a doctor. If you have an elevated conjugated bilirubin, usually there is a liver disease or a cholestatic process, meaning a backup in the bile outflow from the gallbladder, gallstones, things like that. But if bilirubin is elevated, it's not something to ignore. Uh, mine has never been abnormal. You ever seen anything funky on your billy? Nope. Hanging around 0.3, I saw someone the other day who had an elevated conjugated bilirubin, and I think she has biliary disease, meaning she probably has gallstones that may be clearing that are elevating that. So if we see both, if you see both conjugated and unconjugated elevated, we call that a uh, conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Um, if it's just unconjugated or indirect bilirubin, then it's, uh, there's a different differential diagnosis. Like I said, that could be hemolysis for a variety of reasons, which are sort of esoteric within medicine. One indication of biliary disease can come from a, uh, a measure called alkaline phosphatase, which is ALP on the CMP. And if that is elevated, then we start to think about um, biliary stasis or elevation of, uh, the, uh, there are problems with the, cole, the process of moving bile into the bile ducts. But that's generally, the differential diagnosis of elevated alkaline phosphatase is large. But if alkaline phosphatase is elevated, I would uh, see your doctor it's not something to ignore, but I've never seen it abnormal in a, uh, a carnivorous human. Normal IOP for you too, I presume. Yep, normal yeah. in the in the range. Same for AST and ALT. Yeah, AST and ALT are interesting. Those are alanine aminotransferase and aspartate aminotransferase. Those are considered to be quote-unquote liver enzymes. People will always say like, oh, is eating a lot of meat or is eating a carnivore diet going to hurt your liver? And if we're thinking about liver function, uh, these are the enzymes we look at. They are normal, mine are 21, mine are both 21 right now. And so I've not seen this in people. I have heard from some people that they sometimes get bumps in their liver enzymes. And what I think of with this is I wonder how much protein they're eating and I have a suspicion that they may be eating too much protein. It is possible to overwhelm your liver's capacity to do the urea cycle and to turn nitrogen into urea which is our water-soluble form of nitrogen from amino acids. I talked about this in my uh, Ancestral Health Symposium talk and in the debate I did with Ted Naiman, uh, which is now on my YouTube channel and was originally on Chris Bell's uh, Under Better, Stronger, Faster podcast. But the idea there is that uh, all of our livers have an intrinsic capacity, which is genetically determined to convert the nitrogen-containing amino acids in our diets into urea, and if we exceed that, it can spill over into ammonia, which is not a good thing. 
Um, perhaps in some people who are eating lots of protein, the ALT may go up uh, as they're upregulating sort of the processing of amino acids in an adjustment phase. But if I do see an elevated or even high normal ALT or AST, I look into it more. Liver enzymes should not be elevated. Incidentally, if you guys want a mini medical school thing, the AST to ALT ratio is something we look for when people are using alcohol and alcohol will tend to raise AST relative to ALT. Um, AST occurs outside of the liver as well. ALT is generally specific for the liver, liver, but AST can also be elevated by muscular injury. Going back to alkaline phosphatase, if alkaline phosphatase is elevated, we will fractionate alkaline phosphatase into uh, um, heat uh, labile or heat stabile. And the acronym we had from medical school was that bone burns, meaning that if the alkaline phosphatase is elevated because of something happening in the bones, a probably a, a pathogenic process in the bones, it will be degraded by heat. Um, and that if the alkaline phosphatase is coming from the liver, it will not be degraded by heat. So you can fractionate the ALP, the alkaline phosphatase, if it is elevated. Again, that's just extra credit. Um, that's, uh, yeah, it's like uh, first year medical stuff for you guys. If you're interested, I hope this is not getting too granular, but I wanted to explain that stuff. Good to know. The other measure that we look at in the liver that is often not included is GGT. And this one is interesting. So I'm good friends with Dr. Mercola. When he heard that I was doing a carnivore diet and eating lots of meat, he was concerned that the iron might be causing oxidative distress, and he asked me what my GGT was. GGT stands for gamma glutamyl transferase. It is involved in the formation of glutathione, which uh, listeners may know is one of the endogenous antioxidants in the human body. Glutathione is what we use in the body to police uh, antioxidant or to police free radicals. And so if a GGT is elevated, as I have seen in a couple of clients, I think about environmental toxins and oxidative stress. Mine is 12, which is the low end of the reference range, which was reassuring to Dr. Mercola, but I thought it was insightful for him to recommend at least, or to suggest to ask me what it was. I had already checked it and I just told him, hey, it's always been low. So I have not seen my GGT go up on a carnivore diet, but I look at GGT and I add that um, to make sure that there is no oxidative stress. And I would recommend people add that to their CMP. Elevated GGT can also happen because of processes in the gallbladder or processes with the liver, but we can kind of triangulate around the AST and the ALT and perhaps the alkaline phosphatase if that's going on. So that is kind of a granular discussion of comprehensive metabolic panel. Anything else we should discuss there? I think that pretty much covers it. Those should all be in the normal, normal range. And if they're not, you've got some wonky homeostasis going on. Yeah, that's, there's something going on there. That should not be, um, that should not be out of normal. Um, do we want to run through the CBC diff now? Yep. Yep. Let's do that. Um, the CBC and diff is the complete blood count with differential. Um, and that is a measure of all the blood cells. So, Blood cells are fractionated into red blood cells, white blood cells, and there are all these different lineages of white and red blood cells, and it is quite interesting to look at those. So a CBC with diff is a very cheap and easy way to get a sense of a few things. So generally speaking, a CBC with diff should be normal in carnivores and ketogenic people. I've never seen it to be that abnormal, but we start with the, usually it starts with the white blood cell count. And interestingly, you had a change in your white blood cell count, didn't you? Yeah. I saw mine go down a good bit, um, from my normal standard American diet to, uh, going on to keto and carnivore. My went 
white blood cell count went from 6.7 thousand per microliter to as low as 3.6. So almost half uh, the white blood cell count. And the white blood cells, as we'll talk about, are fractionated and differential into multiple lineages. But I think that's probably a good thing. Similar to Nathan, I have had white blood cell counts which are traditionally slightly low, but I think this is a good thing. I think it means the immune system is not activated. There's a genetic predisposition, I think, in some people to have slightly low white blood cell count. Though if you do have a white, low white blood cell count, you should probably talk to your physician and make sure there's nothing else going on. Some immunologic phenomenon could cause that, but in a lot of people, a, low, a slightly low white blood cell count, as long as the differential is normal, are not pathogenic. And in this case, probably indicates that Nathan's immune system was more quiescent, more calm after. Yeah, it was a drop in neutrophils, it looks like, based on my um, previous test there. But yeah, I think it would definitely make sense that the immune system calmed down. Didn't see many changes in the rest of the values, so it was just the white blood cell count and mainly the neutrophils that decreased. Let's talk about the white blood cell lineages. So neutrophils are... One of the, um, they're part of what is called the innate immune system. The adaptive immune system is sort of the, um, would be considered like T cells and B cells, but the neutrophils are always around. And those are responding to generally when we see neutrophilia or high amounts of neutrophils, we will, um, actually, I think I misspoke. I would, neutrophils are probably also considered part of the adaptive immune system. The innate immune system would probably be dendritic cells and macrophages, but, um, the neutrophils will respond to bacterial infections and the lymphocytes will respond to, uh, generally speaking, uh, viral infections. So um, when the neutrophils are high, we're saying, oh, what's it responding to? Is the body responding to a bacteria? What's going on there? But we break the white blood cell count, white, white blood cells down into neutrophils, lymphocytes, monocytes, eosinophils, basophils, and like I said, the neutrophils generally respond to bacteria. Lymphocytes generally respond to viruses, though it's not that simple. Monocytes are a pre-macrophage lineage. And eosinophils, when I see eosinophils elevated, I think about parasites or allergies. Basophils are also implicated in allergies. So different types of blood cells being high will sometimes give us a sense of what could be triggering a, an elevated white blood cell count. But we can look at numbers, absolute numbers of white blood cells and percentages. And um, in your case, Nathan, your neutrophils have been kind of borderline low and then into the normal ranges, but it's not something to get bogged down about. I do notice the thing that I would look at on everybody's profile, including yours, is the eosinophils I want to be low because I want to not miss a GI parasite. Right. If the eosinophils are high, that's the first thing I think of or allergy or autoimmune disease, though allergy and autoimmune disease are probably reflected in high eosinophils rather than causing, rather than eosinophils being the cause of that. Yeah, and I had very low eosinophils and basophils, so yeah. that's good. And so Nathan's white blood cell count is within normal. His percentages are within normal. His absolute numbers are all pretty normal. So nothing crazy here. But when the differential counts of the different uh, parts of the immune system are off, then it's worth looking into what might be going on there. Um, and repeating. The other part of the CBC is the red blood cell count, and it gives us three measures of how many red blood cells are in the body. It gives us a red blood cells, it gives us a hemoglobin, which is a measure of uh, sort of the density of um, 
the amount of the oxygen carrying capacity, and then we get a hematocrit, which is another measure of how much oxygen carrying capacity we have. So we can actually, we can count the red blood cells, we can look at how much hemoglobin is in there, and then we can look at sort of how densely they are able to carry oxygen. And again, these are, should be normal in people on ketogenic and carnivore diets. If there is anemia, which is a low red blood cell count, then we have to look at the further markers to get a sense of what might be causing the anemia. Yep, and mine were in the normal range, except my last test where I look a little bit anemic because I probably was because I donated blood the week before. There you go. Interesting. So your hematocrit, you can it, the red blood cell count, the hemoglobin and the hematocrit all kind of tell us the same thing. A little bit of nuance there, but generally the one measure I look at is hematocrit. Yours has been 44 to 41. Mine most recently was 45. Um, People, the riders in the Tour de France used to get excess hematocrit from doping and using things like EPO. They can push their hematocrit up. Hematocrit gives us a sense of oxygen carrying capacity. So if we have a high hematocrit, we will probably be able to do more aerobic exercise. Interestingly, one of the concerns people have when they go on uh, exogenous testosterone replacement is that can push the hematocrit too high and over excessive testosterone supplementation can cause uh, hypercoagulability, if we get too many red blood cells in the blood, in the blood vessels, then we can get blood clots. And that has killed more than one Tour de France rider. Yeah. They get a super low resting heart rate and they basically just clog up. They got to hop out of bed with their heart rate drops and hop on the bike for a few minutes before I don't know. they get I don't back know. to sleep. I think it's actually just hypercoagulability. Yeah. Yeah. I think they get hypercoagulable. Don't Marco. sign me up for that. I'm happy with my casual bike riding. Yeah, I mean, this is the problem that when people are on testosterone replacement, we talked about that a little bit earlier, that I think it's inappropriate in most males. Uh, we have to watch the hematocrit and make sure it doesn't go too high, lest we um, run into problems there. So if there is anemia, we look at something called the MCV, which is the mean corpuscular volume. Yours is within normal. It's in the 90s. Mine has been within normal. And... Uh, but if it's too high, we think about a folate or a B12 problem. If it's too low, we think about an iron problem. Sometimes there can be both. You can have both uh, high and low MCV, in which case something called the RDW will be elevated. So RDW is red blood cell distribution width. And if you have a high RDW and you are anemic, then it's possible that you have lots of sizes of your red blood cells. And if you have both small and large red blood cells, there's something going on with your blood that is abnormal. But if you are anemic, or that is having a low hematocrit, a low red blood cell count, low hemoglobin, you should look at the MCV and get a sense of whether that is high or low, which may give some indication for why you are anemic. There are other causes of anemia, such as anemia of chronic disease, which may uh, be normal MCV. So there are microcytic anemias, normocytic anemias, and macrocytic anemias. The mean corpuscular hemoglobin is a little bit more of an esoteric measure. There's also an MCHC, and we talked about the RDW a little bit. But the MCV is really the one that you want to look at in conjunction with the red blood cell distribution width. If people listen to the podcast I did with Tommy Wood, he's done some very interesting research looking at RDW values correlating with longevity, suggesting that the higher the RDW, there may be a problem. So if people have elevated or even high normal RDWs, you would want to look at things like toxin exposure. We'll talk about heavy metals a little bit later and um, also nutrients. Yours have all been normal as we're looking at this. Your RDW looks good, 12.5, 11.9. Yep. Um, that's an ideal RDW, so I don't want to see the RDW too much higher than 12.5. 
The other thing on the CBC is the platelet count, which is a measure of um, clotting, one of the cells that are clotting, and um, that is uh, normal, and it should be normal to most people. If that's abnormal, then we have something else going on. So let's move on to the omega-3 stuff. You've done a lot of stuff with your omega-3 indices and fatty acids. Yeah, I found that pretty interesting to track along with uh, nutrient intakes. I've took my uh, omega-3 ratio from uh, about 10 when I first measured it. I'm eating a bunch of fish then, and I took it uh, as high as uh, 14, which put me above the reference range. Uh, And that's looking at basically the percentage of Omega total omega-3 fatty acids, both EPA, DHA, and DPA that make up uh, red blood cell um, membranes. Membrane, yeah. So my current latest one was uh, pretty high. I was looking at um, 14 or 9.7% uh, omega-3 fatty acids total for an index of 10.1. I uh, had pretty normal to low omega-6 fatty acids. Um, and it's interesting to note that despite eating a ton of saturated fatty acids, um, my saturated fatty acids that actually make up the red blood cells was actually puts me at a very low percentile, um, like the fourth percentile or something. What was your saturated total percentage? Uh, about 30%. 30%, wow. Hmm. So that, um, let's just clarify for people. The omega-3 index is a sum of the red blood cell EPA and DHA. There are some... And the omega-3 index is something that someone came up with and they've done some studies on it. But generally, when I'm looking at omega-3 fatty acid percentages of people, I want a red blood cell omega-3 fatty acid, not a serum fatty acid levels of omega-3s. The serum levels of omega-3s are inaccurate. And I I will either look at the total omega-3 or the omega-3 index. I don't get hung up if the omega-3 index is not 8. Mine most recently was 7.7 with a total percentage of omega-3 for me at 10.9. What I really want to see is the relative ratios of ALA being alpha-linolenic acid, which is an omega-3. That's coming from plants. Mine is essentially zero. Uh, DPA, which is an omega-3 that's not talked about much, which is docosapentaenoic acid, EPA, and DHA. And I want to make sure they have that people have a robust amount of EPA, DPA, and DHA. Where can you get that? Fish, uh, grass-fed, organ, grass-fed animal fat, which I eat a ton of. Uh, egg yolks, those are great sources of omega-3s. And you're going to need some omega-6s to make arachidonic acid, which has signaling properties in the human body. Um, But I do not recommend people consume excess amounts of omega-6 from plants, especially in the form of seed oils. Yep. And it's worth noting that you can make pretty massive changes and improvements in these indexes and ratios from diet alone. Uh, I didn't do any supplementation with omega-3s. I just ate a can of sardines every day and some uh, salmon and some salmon roe and grass-fed meat and was able to take my omega index to the 99th percentile very easily, which had uh, about 5% EPA, 5% DHA. I'm not a fan of uh, fish oil supplements. I've talked about this a little bit in the past. I think most of them are rancid and oxidized. I would I universally take people off of them and recommend that they get the omega-3 from food. Yep. I'm not a fan of krill oil. Um, I think salmon roe is a great source of phospholipid-derived DHA. Again, I don't necessarily do it every day. Um, see what works for you. But I don't recommend fish oil supplements to people. Yep. Go for the fatty fish, cod liver, salmon roe, salmon. Fatty meat. 
all those kind of things. Fatty I, meat. Iberian pork fat. Potentially lamb. Lamb's a pretty, that's like land salmon people refer to it <laughs> as. Uh, if you get some of that grass-fed yeah. New Zealand lamb. Kidney fat, suet, yeah. I want to see the omega-6 total low. And then the other fatty acids that are shown on mine are uh, saturated fat, which uh, for me is 40.8%, and trans fat total, which is interesting. We were talking a little bit about this recently in... Uh, ahead of my talk at AHS. So people think trans fat, they think of it as negative. And there's one trans fat, if people want to get an omega-3 profile, there's one trans fat called elidic acid, E-L-A-I-D-I-C uh, acid, uh, or maybe E-L-I-A-D-I-C acid that is from uh, plants that is a bad trans fat that is from the hydrogenation of vegetable oils. But there are other trans fats in animal meat, which signal, which are much more common to us evolutionarily and probably have good signaling properties. I talk about that in my AHS talk, which should be posted when this comes out, that there are a couple of trans fatty acids in animals, specifically conjugated linoleic acid and uh, uh, vicenic acid that can also be included in this trans fat total. Yep. And I saw my uh, trans fat index and total trans fat increase and I suspect that that's coming from the vicenic acid and CLA precursors that are in uh, dairy and in animal fat. Yeah. And again, there's interesting research on this. I don't think we fully understand what's going on with CLA. There is possibility that it's involved in satiety, is helpful for potentially weight loss. It potentially could modulate the immune system. It clearly modulates uh, receptor systems and hormonal systems like PPAR, the peroxisome proliferator, alpha and gamma systems as well. So there are probably beneficial trans fats in animal meat, especially grass-fed animal meat, that signal to our, our body's hormonal systems and uh, epigenetically or affect transcription in positive ways. So people might be saying, how can one trans fat be good and another be bad? And I think it has to do with the fact that where that double bond is affects the way that molecule is different. It's a completely different molecule and they probably signal different things in our bodies uh, in a hormonal way. It's very clear that fats, especially the omega-3s, all of them, arachidonic acid, conjugated linoleic acid, these can act as semi-hormonal or they can affect hormonal systems with their signaling. And the, uh, this detailed omega, uh, fatty acid analysis, you can basically order on Amazon. There's a company called the Omega Quant that neither of us have any affiliation with that was founded by the guy who did all the research on the omega three index. And you basically just bleed on a little postage card and send it back to Nebraska or something, North Dakota. And they send you a PDF with all of your fatty acid breakdown. And I found that, uh, and a lot of people have commented that, it seems like having a higher omega-3 index results in increased sunburn tolerance. And there's some research to back that up, that people's uh, UV tolerance more than tripled uh, with increased supplementation of EPA and DHA. I've heard people say that about uh, carnivore diets in general, that they feel like they have more tolerance to the sun. Michaela Peterson was talking about that. Yeah, it's an interesting side note on that. Yeah. Omega-3s are going into other stuff. Let's talk about the thyroid hormones a little bit. So a lot of times when people go to the thyroid, go to the thyroid. When a lot of times when people go to the doctor, they'll just get a TSH, and that's woefully inadequate in my opinion. TSH is a, a precursor or it's a signaling molecule. It's a hormone that's secreted from your uh, pituitary that goes to the thyroid. Especially maybe it's secreted from your hypothalamus. Um, that goes to the thyroid, and um, it signals the thyroid to make T4, which is the precursor to T3. Both T4 and T3 are active in the periphery. There is peripheral conversion of T4 to T3 in the human body. 
And But generally speaking, T3 is the main active hormone. In states of stress, T4 can also be converted to reverse T3, which is not active in the human body and sort of is a um, a signal to the body, like put the brakes on when we're fasting. If we're not getting enough calories, the reverse T3 can be high. So when I see a thyroid panel, which I think is one of the crucial panels, I want to see TSH, T4, free T4, T3, and reverse T3. Now, I just want people to understand that TSH, if it's low, means that there is a hyperthyroid condition. If TSH is high, it means that the body is working very hard to signal to the thyroid to put out more thyroid hormones. So the TSH goes in the opposite direction of your thyroid hormones. Generally, I want to see TSH below two. My TSH is generally around one, one and a half, um, and I'll talk about my other thyroid hormones as well. Um, my T4 most recently was 5.7, 5.2, with a free T4 of 1.1. And my T3, though originally within normal, when I started a carnivore diet, generally bumped a little bit below the reference range. Uh, mine is now 55 to 65. Uh, people who criticize ketogenic carnivore diets will point to this and say, ha-ha, you're hypothyroid, except... Uh, I'm not hypothyroid because I'm not gaining weight. Uh, I don't have problems with my metabolism, nor do I have cold intolerance or low energy. And I think this goes back to tissue sensitivity. And this is actually a pretty well-documented phenomenon that on ketogenic diets, tissue sensitivity to T3 probably increases and we don't need T3 to be as high. So if people are not having symptoms of hypothyroidism, I do not worry about a slightly low T3 or free T3 on a ketogenic diet. It seems to be a feature. What have your thyroid hormones done? They're pretty much in the same range as yours. My total T3 is on the lower end, like you suggested, but all the other values are within normal range. TSH is in the same as yours, around 1. T4, 6 to 7. Um, all, all the rest are in the normal range. Interesting. And my reverse T3 has been is 15. Did you ever get a reverse T3? I did. It was uh, 15 to 12 to 18, it looks like. Yeah. If the reverse T3 is elevated, again, I think about stress, sleep, things like that. That should not be elevated. But uh, a slightly low T3, I don't worry about unless someone is having a ton of symptoms. And the other thing to think about with thyroid that many physicians don't do is thyroid antibodies. I want to see if there's an, an issue. I want to know if the thyroid is off. I want to know if the body's having an immune reaction. This is antithyroglobulin and antithyroid peroxidase. I've never had a problem with these. They're quite low. Um, both of them are sort of below the detectable limit of normal for me. Um, you've never had elevated thyroid hormones. Nope. All below detectable. And if people have elevated thyroid antibodies, that's where we start to think about autoimmune thyroiditis. Generally we're thinking about Hashimoto's, but there are other issues as well. There is an, also another, uh, antithyroid antibody, which can be an antithyroid receptor antibody, which can sometimes happen in hyperthyroid, which is a Graves condition, Graves hyperthyroid. Uh, again, this is a little esoteric, and you should talk to your physician about that. But I think it's very important to check a full thyroid panel. Now, anything else you want to say about thyroid, Nathan? No, I don't think it's really that interesting in most of the time. Oh, it's super interesting. Well, it's interesting, but it, you know, my values are all in the reference range, and uh, we know why T3 is low. So I think that's, uh, that pretty much covers it. Yeah, so don't believe the hype, and don't listen to the keto skeptics necessarily. If you're not feeling good, then something else to imagine or investigate there, but don't listen to the keto skeptics saying that your T3 needs to be within the reference range on keto. That just seems like a physiologic phenomenon. Uh, and I did a, uh, talk with Jamie Seaman, who's an OBGYN in Nebraska on my YouTube channel. People can refer to 
where we talk about the tissue sensitivity of thyroid hormones. And we reviewed a paper during that talk where we talked about this phenomenon that sometimes there are uh, pretty clear evidence that the tissue sensitivity can change. Let's talk about a little iron studies because I people sometimes worry about excess iron on carnivore diets. I think that you need to get uh, a number of things for this, which would be, like I said, TIBC, transferrin, um, ferritin, and serum iron. What have you seen for your iron values? Uh, my TIBIC was 306 and 350. TIBC? Yep. TIBIC. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Uh, That's total iron binding. Total iron. Total iron binding capacity. My iron saturation was 22% and my ferritin was 127, uh, except in my most recent lab right after I donated blood, in which case it was lower, which is expected because I lost a pint of my own blood. Right. So, and then did you ever get a serum iron? Uh, yes, it was 67 and 66. Okay. So for iron, to really know what's going on with iron, we have to look at serum iron, which is how much iron is in the blood. Uh, TIBC is sort of a measure of um, how much space there is to bind iron. So total iron binding capacity. And transferrin tells us kind of the same thing as does the transferrin saturation. And the ferritin is a measure of stored iron. So the, the nuance here is that sometimes if people have a polymorphism or a mutation in a, something called hemochromatosis, which is rare but happens, they can have excess iron storage. This is why we should be checking iron, just making sure. Um, in that case, the transferrin saturation will be super high because your body will be binding up all the iron. Uh, your TIBC, meaning the total iron binding capacity, will be low, and the ferritin can be quite high. And that is a dangerous situation. It doesn't mean you can't eat a carnivore diet. It means you should do phlebotomy regardless of the diet you are eating. The other criticism leveled against the carnivore diet is the fact that ferritin may go up on a carnivore diet, although... Ferritin is tightly linked as an inflammatory marker, and so we have to take it in the context of inflammation. If ferritin goes too high, or if CRP is elevated, that can elevate ferritin. But generally, what I have not seen, and Nathan is a good example of this, is that generally eating a lot of meat will not cause the iron stores in your body to go too high. That is a fallacy. Um, Dr. Mercola was worried about it, but I do not see it. Um, it could happen in the rare situation where somebody had hemochromatosis, but you wouldn't know if you had that, or you should know uh, if you have not been checked for that and your iron is off or your ferritin is very high, then you should be checked for that. But um, ferritin, mine stays around 200, meaning I have plenty of iron stored because I'm eating lots of iron in meat, but our bodies have a way to get rid of excess iron. They do this normally through the intestines. We slough off the cells. We can bind iron in our small intestinal epithelial cells and then slough them off. If you eat a lot of iron, it will not just accumulate uh, and go rampant and cause oxidative stress like many people suggest. Yep. The absorption and excretion are both nicely homeostatically regulated. Our body does a nice job there. Yeah. So the idea, this is one of the criticisms of the carnivore diet that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If your ferritin is elevated, you should look at inflammatory markers as well and figure out what is causing inflammation, which is sort of the theme for everything. Yep. Generally, that increases just it being an acute phase reactant. Yep. Acute phase reactant being like an inflammatory marker with fibrinogen, HSCRP, ferritin. Those are all acute phase reactants. Sometimes we use something called ESR, which is erythrocyte sedimentation rate. So we talked about lipids. We talked about insulin. We talked about hemoglobin A1C. We talked about comprehensive metabolic panel, CMP. We talked about thyroid and hormones. We talked about iron. Let's dig into a few of these sort of more esoteric tests before we close. What else have you checked on yourself? 
Uh, I've done a lot of the vitamins and minerals. I did vitamin D, magnesium, B12, folate, lead, mercury, vitamin A, copper, zinc, selenium, and CoQ10. Let's talk about the vitamins and minerals next. And I left this out of the list. Um, perhaps in the intro of this video, I'll have to go back and revise the list, but vitamin D should definitely be on the, the list for everyone. But um, the vitamins and minerals are quite interesting, and this falls into sort of the micronutrient panel. Um, you can get these in the serum, and there are multiple labs. Genova does a, uh, a test called the NutraEval, where they talk about this. But uh, you'll want to check B12, uh, serum level of B12, and the corresponding marker is methylmalonic acid. Uh, those should be normal. No one should be deficient in B12. If you are deficient in B12, we have a major issue. Uh, serum folate is not as valuable as red blood cell folate. Uh, B6 should be measured in the blood. The best way to measure vitamin D is 25-hydroxy vitamin D. And I'll just say a word about that, and then I'll hear your values for those blood tests if you have them, Nathan. Uh, I think that sun is uniquely beneficial to humans, and I do not, I am not convinced that supplementation with vitamin D, that would be, 20, that would be cholecalciferol, uh, in a pill or a capsule is going to give us the same benefits of getting in the sun. Now, there's a whole podcast about this probably in the works or whatnot, but um, that will be my short answer there. I think people should not burn. They should not overexpose to the sun, but sunlight I think is uniquely valuable, and I do not take vitamin D. I want all of the vitamin D in my blood to reflect sun exposure, and I think that store, uh, studies would suggest that vitamin D, at least in terms of beneficial outcomes, is probably a proxy for sun exposure, Supplementation with vitamin D doesn't seem to have anywhere near the benefits that um, getting it from the sun might. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Curiously, my vitamin D, I was supplementing for a little bit and then decided that was silly because the sun exposure part makes sense. But I increased my sun exposure a lot and it's summertime in Seattle and it's been pretty sunny and my vitamin D went down. So that's kind of curious. What's your vitamin D now? It is at 27 nanograms a milliliter, which puts me below the reference range. I generally like to see vitamin D above 45. I've, when I was in Seattle and getting sunlight every day for like an hour, I had a vitamin D about 50, 55. Interesting. And now my vitamin D is 44, so I need to get a little more sun, but it's work. I mean, that's one of the reasons it I is. moved to San Diego was to get vitamin D more easily. So I have been looking into my low RBC magnesium, which I think is also potentially related to the low vitamin D. So it could be that my magnesium status is impacting my vitamin D status. So I'll have to up the supplementation on magnesium because that can be sort of difficult to get in the diet. Yeah. We can talk about magnesium when we talk about the more of the micronutrients. Have you done, you did B12 and MMA and RBC folate, right? I did B12 and RBC folate and serum folate. Those are all above Robust. or in the normal range. Right. The other one that I'll comment on with a little bit of sparkle in my eye is my vitamin E, which is above the reference range. So I'm waiting for you, Rhonda Patrick. Um, people often say the carnivore diet doesn't have enough vitamin E, and I say hogwash because there's probably tons of vitamin A, excuse me, vitamin E in grass-fed animal fat, and my vitamin E and the vitamin E of many carnivores I work with is above the reference range. There's tons of vitamin E on a carnivore diet. Did you ever check vitamin E? I never did check vitamin E. I'll we have should, to do that on the next yeah. panel. The other thing that I have had checked is Coenzyme Q10. This is one of the electron acceptors in the electron transport chain of mitochondria and generally correlates with mitochondrial health. I don't have anyone that I work with supplement because it's so robust in animal foods. My CoQ10 has been between 2.4 and 2.7. Seen, I've seen coenzyme Q10s as high as 3.5 micrograms per ml. They are so robust on carnivore diets. It is, I see the highest levels of CoQ10. What has yours been? Three. 
Three, he's got a bigger coenzyme Q10 than me. We see also um, some of the other micronutrients here. I have had a red blood cell magnesium as well. Mine is a little higher than Nathan's, but still kind of on the low end, minus 4.7. Uh, magnesium, I'll just comment about. It's hard to get in our diets. I talked about this in the podcast with Max Lugavere. Even from plant foods, magnesium is hard to get in our diets. And um, I do supplement. I wonder if uh, there is some balance between magnesium, potassium, and sodium. And we haven't totally figured it out. But I don't think it's harmful to supplement with a good magnesium supplement. I've talked about those in the past. Magnesium supplementation may cause loose stool for people. But it's worth it to check your RBC magnesium. Um, also I've checked serum calcium, which is included generally on the comprehensive metabolic panel. It's not a great measure of calcium, but it tells us something. Um, I will also note in terms of micronutrients that my plasma copper was 92, which is in the middle to low end of the reference range. Many people ask me, should I, can I eat lots of liver a day and worry about copper toxicity? I say, don't worry about it because zinc protects you from copper toxicity. You're going to get a lot of zinc if you're eating other animal foods like spleen or liver or muscle meat. And it is basically impossible or virtually impossible, very difficult to get copper toxic if you are eating any amount of zinc. The reverse is not true. And I have concerns about people who are supplementing with zinc without copper. You definitely can get copper deficient if you do not eat copper-rich foods, those being liver. I think there are some mushrooms like shiitake mushrooms that are good for copper, but we need to get copper in our diets, and I think liver is a good source, and the fact that I'm eating a ton of liver and my copper is nowhere near elevated is a good indication that we don't have to worry about copper in liver causing toxicity. What other micronutrients have you had? Yeah, I did zinc, copper, and selenium, and they were all within the normal range. What I was had, your uh, RBC zinc? I didn't do RBC for these. These what were plasma? serum measures. Um, 106 for zinc mm-hmm. and, uh, or sorry, 71 and 106. No, sorry, the other way around. 106 for zinc, 71 for copper. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and selenium? Selenium was also 106. And the units on the zinc, you, plasma zinc, right? Plasma zinc, that was micrograms per deciliter. Right. My plasma zinc is 103. My RBC zinc is 1407. So pretty robust zinc status for me too. My selenium is within the normal range. It's plasma selenium micrograms per liter minus 115. Curiously, when I was targeting trying to get more zinc, uh, my zinc went up and my copper went down. So that uh, that's how it works. That does align that. With yeah, that. I was yeah. eating a lot of uh, oysters. Yeah, we need a source of copper in our diets. Absolutely, and. Um, I spoke about this in one of the new blog posts on my website, which is now carnivoremd.com, that uh, if we are not getting enough copper, we can run into problems, and that copper deficiency manifests in a way that looks like B12 deficiency, which is neurologic symptoms, balance, in coordination. Copper deficiency is no joke. Is that Wilson's disease? No, Wilson's disease is copper toxicity. Ah, It has to do with uh, ceruloplasmin. Uh, mutations and people can accumulate copper gotcha. in Wilson's disease. So you haven't gotten Wilson's disease from eating too much liver? Uh, no, and Wilson's disease is a genetic thing oh, necessarily, okay. and there are there are characteristic changes in the eye which happen in Wilson's disease. It's one of these zebras everybody gets excited about in medical school and nobody ever sees it. But <laughs> if people do have a high copper level, um, then they should think about, they should be ruled out for Wilson's, which you can do with the genetic test or looking at the ceruloplasmin and uh, maybe the free copper in the blood. Wilson's can manifest with psychiatric symptoms. So it's a very rare thing, a genetic sort of uh, high copper. So I also tested the bad heavy metals, lead and mercury, and my lead was below the detectable limit. That's good. Not eating any paint chips or anything. Um, And my mercury was three, which is below what you'd want. 
Yeah. I do think it's valuable for people to have uh, blood, toxic metals at least once. I've done arsenic, cadmium, lead, mercury, and thallium. Uh, all of mine were quite low. The first one to think about is lead, which is micrograms per deciliter. You definitely want your lead below two. Mine was 1.1 and 1.3. The cadmium was very low. My arsenic was very low. My mercury was less than 0.7 in the blood, so I beat you there. And my thallium was quite low. Many times people ask, should they do urine heavy metals? Should they do provoked with DMSA? Is hair accurate? My answer is that I it, we do not have reference ranges for provoked urine heavy metals, and I don't recommend it unless you're doing it with someone who really knows what they're talking about. I think blood metals are generally accurate or generally adequate in the beginning, and if something is elevated in the blood, you might want to know. If you have a ton of mercury fillings, you may want to do a provoked urine mercury, but generally speaking, I think blood toxic metals are a good place to start, but you do want to look out for mercury in fatty fish or big fish like Swordfish, yep. tuna. Swordfish, you, tuna, king mackerel, those are all not so great. Not so great. I have seen very high mercury levels in a client who was eating a lot of sea bass, and she had to do a lot of support with glutathione, sauna, and things like that. Lead is generally in drinking water. If people have a high lead, you'd want to look into where that's coming from. That is abnormal, and that will definitely mess with your quality of life. Cadmium is in seafood. Uh, specifically shellfish. Not doesn't mean you can't ever eat shellfish. Just be aware that if you eat a lot of shellfish, you could be pushing a lot of cadmium. Arsenic, generally in drinking water. Be careful with that. Look at where you're living. Get a good filter. Apple seeds. Apple seeds. Yeah, yeah. Guess you're not eating those if you're a carnivore. But not eating. Yeah. Probably don't, don't eat them anyway. Don't go on an apple seed binge. But I think we should know what's going on with our metals. I I will just say that I think people are overly concerned about metals, and there's a lot of fear mongering about metals. I don't worry about them a ton. Uh, if the blood levels look good like this, just know where you could be getting contamination. Makes a lot of sense. And from what I understand, intaking selenium can help either clear out or prevent damage from magnesium, or sorry, mercury. Glutathione peroxidase is one of the enzymes involved in the cycling of glutathione and is a selenium dependent, selenium yeah. dependent enzyme. Yeah. So selenium is also important for the conversion of T4 to T3. So if people do not have adequate conversion of T4 to T3, which you would only know if you did T4 and T3 levels, not just a TSH, there is the potential of selenium deficiency, which is why this all kind of fits together. Yep. And you can get selenium in other fatty fish like sardines. No, they're a good source. And I assume it's in animal meat as well. It's in animal meat. It's in liver. It's in all those, all those parts of the animal. Yep. All those bits. The other thing I'll say is that there's good evidence that humans can at least excrete some of the heavy metals, mercury, uh, lead, I believe arsenic or cadmium, I have to confirm this, uh, via sauna. And so sauna can help with some, not all of them, but some. Interesting. And if people have high levels of heavy metals, they can consider a short course of glutathione supplementation, but I don't, I'm not a great fan of glutathione supplementation long-term, but that would be in the context of all the metals. So let me see, do we, is there anything we didn't cover? We've gotten through a lot. Yeah, I think we've covered almost all the tests that I've had done. The only thing we haven't covered is leptin, which is kind of this measure of, uh, it's a hormone involved in satiety. If, if anyone has an elevated leptin, they might be considered leptin resistant, and there's a good reason to figure out why you're leptin resistant. It's probably inflammation. But sometimes I like to add leptin to the profiles just to get a sense of that um, to contribute. Now, in terms of other tests, we've gone through, a, that was a big blood test. Um, again, on the blog post on my website, I'll have all the tests listed. Hopefully this has been helpful with a lot of clients. I will do more than blood testing, depending on the issues they're having. I may do something like an organic acids test, which is comprehensive 
and complex and way beyond the scope of this podcast, but that may, be give, me, may give me a little bit more indication of uh, metabolism of vitamins and minerals and whatnot, but uh, the organic acids is sometimes valuable. I also do a lot of GI testing. Rather than looking at the microbiome per se, I'm looking for parasites and pathogens, things like blastocystis, things like H. pylori, things like worms and uh, amoebas, and I can do that with something called a GI map, which does quantitative polymerase chain reaction and amplification of things in the gut. So, And then there's all sorts of other tests, but I think the people don't need to worry about those. If you have a lot of gut issues, you might think about doing uh, a breath test for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Working with a functional medicine practitioner, you should be able to figure out pretty fast uh, if you have clinical symptoms of SIBO. But if you have a lot of GI symptoms, you probably want to do a gut test in addition to blood testing. But I think that with the comprehensive blood testing that we are describing here and a gut test, you'd be pretty well pretty well covered. I know you said you've done whole genome sequencing. Yeah, I've done uh, 23andMe, a full exome sequence, and now two full genome sequences because uh, I guess, as they say, a fool and his money are soon parted, and uh, <laughs> I've been tricked by the the magic of genetics. But I figure it will it won't go old. My genome's not changing, so as we learn more, uh, I can go through it and see you know what's interesting. And I, I do this stuff as kind of a citizen scientist researcher. So maybe I'll it. I'll publish my whole genome somewhere. And I think with this podcast, I'll publish my lab results. They're already on my Twitter, but. Yeah, Paul can link to this spreadsheet with all my lab yeah, results. Yeah, we'll link so to the spreadsheet with all of Nathan's lab results those. and we can put some of my lab results in a spreadsheet as well. Um, the, the only thing I would say is that sometimes 23andMe is valuable. I do think that looking at single nucleotide polymorphisms is valuable. It's much less comprehensive than an exome sequence. but um, And the, the effect sizes of these things are teeny tiny. Teeny find, tiny. find a gene that claims it's a you know 1.5x increased risk of high cholesterol in the actual change in cholesterol is one milligram a deciliter or something. And you just kind of go, well, that's, it's not useful. <laughs> it, uh, it doesn't have clinical relevance, but you know, Hey, these things go on sale for black Friday. You can get a whole genome sequence for $350 and they give you, you know, the, the VCF file, which is all the variants versus the reference genome. They give you the, apparently eventually the fast Q and BAM files. So you basically get, you know, a ridiculous amount of data, raw data about your genome that you can run through all kinds of tools if you're a nerd like me and see what's going on with your genome. But uh, these things are don't have great clinical significance unless you have some kind of bizarre undiagnosed problem um, where kind of genetics is your last hope. But if you can get a whole genome sequence for under $500, that's below the cost. And this happens, you know, every once in a while from people like Veritas and a couple other genome sequencing places. Yeah, I generally don't find a whole lot of utility to 23andMe, but it's interesting. You know, occasionally the SNPs. I mean, if somebody, you can see hemochromatosis on a 23andMe. I'm a carrier. I, that's, yeah. that's shown up in mine. That's the one of the only interesting genes that I'm a carrier for is hemochromatosis. We did a whole podcast with Tommy Wood. Uh, you can see your APOE4. You should listen to that podcast if you have questions about that. It was eye-opening. Uh, you might see polymorphisms in LDL receptor or perhaps familial hypercholesterolemia on a 23andMe, but generally speaking, uh, they're academically interesting. They very rarely change the way that I manage patients or yep. we, we change in our lives. We're just trying to do overall live a good life. So hopefully that's helpful for you guys. I wanted to take, I wanted to talk about blood work. I basically wanted to do a podcast where I run through blood work and explain it to people. Probably people are going to find this one quite technical. I hope it's helpful. You'll probably have lots of questions. You should talk to your physician about them. Um, but blood work is very powerful and I wanted to empower 
people to know what to get and what it means. Again, if you have questions, you should be working with a functional medicine doc to interpret all this stuff. But uh, the other take home is that a carnivore diet will not kill you and you might just feel amazing. And that neither Nathan or I have seen any major changes or derangements in testosterone, kidney function, liver function, thyroid function, uh, anything that's concerning to us for inflammation. A carnivore diet, I believe, is our ancestral diet and is not going to kill you. It's just going to make you feel awesome. Yep. And there's a lot of nuance to a lot of these things that we can't really cover. So it's definitely worth um, working with a doctor to do research on some of these things if you have kind of abnormal values um, because these things get really complicated really quickly. And many of these change a little bit in the setting of ketosis. Yep. And that is the other thing I've talked about before that people need to be aware. And I wish that mainstream physicians were a little more aware of how some of these numbers might change in a ketogenic state, specifically thyroid, potentially other hormones, definitely cholesterol. Um, some of these things may alter and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing. It just means, Hey, your body looks a little different when you're not running on carbohydrates. Yep. Cool, man. Thank you for this. What is the most radical thing you've done recently, Nathan? Well, I flew down here for AHS and I started a podcast. That's right. We talked about that and I'm excited to hear it. So cool. What was your favorite talk at AHS? Uh, I thought Tommy Woods was really good. He talked about kind of the bullshit behind a lot of the genetic polymorphism research. Um, and he had some really nice graphics. I'm going to help him make his graphics a little nicer with some Python code. And uh, hopefully we can show people that uh, some of these things are kind of uh, more hype than use, useful. Awesome. Yeah, Tommy is a good friend of mine. And I've released a podcast with him recently. And uh, yeah, I missed that, that talk of his because I was working busily on mine. Um, but uh, that's cool. I want to check that one out and some of the other ones. So thanks for being on with this man. This is a long one. Dude, this might be the, this might be the record. Let's well, pack it up, bro. If you made it this far, congrats. <laughs> Congratulations. You've learned a ton. Hopefully this is helpful. You guys asked for it. I delivered. Don't say I didn't do anything for you. Have a great day, guys. Stay radical. All right. Does your brain have a six-pack? I mean, between the episode last week with Dave and Siobhan and this episode, your brain has a six-pack, you guys. This is insane how much information we have shared. I hope these have both been helpful. Uh, if you find them, if you found this episode to be too intense, please let me know. I can do another more high level episode. Again, I will do a blog post about this in the future, which will have much of this stuff broken down in word form, but I am in the trenches with my book. So that is what is going on with me. You may have noticed that I'm on Instagram a little bit less because Instagram is not the best use of my time right now. The best use of my time is writing this book to help as many people as possible, and that's my real goal long-term. So I appreciate your support and all of that stuff. If you like my work, if you appreciate this podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. It is doing awesome. I mean, every week the downloads are going up and up and up. We have tens of thousands of downloads a week now, which is amazing, and we will get into the top 10 on iTunes pretty much every week for health and fitness when we release the podcast. So that's crazy since I've only been doing it a few months. It really makes me feel good to know that I'm bringing value to you guys. I released an episode of The Insider today, which is Monday, the day before this podcast is coming out. So if you want to subscribe to The Fundamental Health Insider, which is my newsletter, check it out on my website, which is carnivoremd.com. If you want to work with me, send me an email or a message through the website. The contact information is there. I do see clients virtually and in person in San Diego. 
though most of my efforts these days are concentrated on book and creating content for you guys. I do see patients, however. I do see clients. Uh, I like working with people in person. All right, so what else? I have been surfing a lot. I've been on the foil. It's been an amazing time for me. Um, I am super excited about the book. I'm going to share some covers in the future. Again, the title is The Carnivore Code, Unlocking the Secrets to Optimal Health by Returning to Our Ancestral Diet. I talk about all kinds of cool stuff in the book. I am so excited to share it. It's going to be out probably in January of this year, and I want it to be amazing. Check out Nathan at Nathan equals one on Twitter. We talk about his podcast during this uh, episode. He is a super smart engineer doing really cool stuff. Check out his podcast if you want to learn more. And I always appreciate his assistance with these podcasts and being my foil, giving me someone to talk to about blood work. He is a great guy. Check him out. If you are in Seattle, reach out to him and go buy a steak with Nathan because he's a good dude. All right, you guys, I think that's it for this week. Please let me know how you enjoy the podcast. Uh, subscribe to The Insider if you want to get the inside track for all this stuff. Support me on Patreon, Paul Saladino MD, if you appreciate my work. I often post stuff there weeks in advance. There are all kinds of stuff, things, uh, sundry items posted at Patreon now that are not available to the public because I want to give some value to people there. So support me on Patreon if you like my work. Carnivore MD is my website. The Insider is there. Subscribe to that. Check out all my stuff. Please support White Oak Pastures. They are doing great work. Vote with your dollars. The plant-based industry is baloney, baloney, baloney. In fact, they're not even baloney. They're just fake baloney. They're bamboo baloney. And they are actually contributing more to the environmental impact on the planet. And it's obviously creating ill health for humans. So don't buy the hype with that. Uh, I love that Sean Baker is talking about athletes being game-changered. All these vegan athletes are getting injured and knocked out of competition. So clearly, I mean, duh, like plant-based diets are not good for humans. And eventually people are going to wake up to this and the carnivore movement, animal-based movement, carnivore-ish diet will rise and people will feel better, which is what we're going for. It's not about being right. It's about helping people. So I appreciate you all. Much love. I will see you guys soon, maybe next week, probably next week, which will probably be Michaela Peterson's episode. And I am hoping and praying that she will do a steak dance for me. And we will post that and she will be super excited uh, to share that. All right, guys, have a great week. I will talk to you soon.